Before we begin, we want to take a moment to thank our sponsors at Audible. Now that the weather's getting nicer, I'm back to reading and listening to books in the park. And with Audible, it's never been easier. Every month, I get one credit to pick any title, plus two Audible originals from a monthly selection. In addition, I get access to news digests from the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post. If you go to audibletrial.com slash ymopodcast, you'll get two free audiobooks on us. Download thousands of titles offline anytime, anywhere. Having trouble deciding what to pick? Audible lets you keep your credits for up to a year. Find your summer read and support your favorite National Film Registry podcast. Once again, that's audibletrial.com slash ymopodcast. Thank you for your support. And now, on with the show. Gentlemen, what's a pop culture phenomenon that was spoofed where you saw the spoof first? So for me, my answer is actually twofold. It's two things in one. Um, so if anybody remembers the show Animaniacs, they used to do a lot of different segments and skits on Animaniacs. One of the recurring bits they had, because Animaniacs ran when I was a kid, and now it's back, it's on Hulu, it's good, but was they had a, a skit, a recurring skit they would do called The Good Feathers. You know, on a <laughs> show for kids. And it was three pigeons that were parodies of De Niro, Leota, and Pesci from Goodfellas. And, like, they would just do fucking Goodfellas the same way that, like, old Looney Tunes cartoons would do, like, Abbott and Costello and shit. Um, and you just had these moments of, you know, you, every time you would have a bit where the Pesci pigeon would do, funny, funny how? How am I funny? What am I, you know, funny to you? Uh, and, and the Leota pigeon was made a little dumber. So I was fascinated by that. I remember asking my mom every time it would come, I'm like, what is that? And she'd go, it's Goodfellas. And I'd be like, can I watch it? And she would say no, because I was a child, and it's Goodfellas. But one Goodfellas segment they did involved, because I think their names were like Jimmy, Pesto, and Squit. Or I know Pesto and Squit were them. Squit, the Leota character, and one of them falls in love with another bird uh, from a different, a, a different breed of bird. And I remember this vividly. Her name was Carluda. And he starts singing the m song Maria from West Side Story about this bird Carluda. So I asked him, I'm like, what's this? And she goes, West Side Story. And they did the whole thing with the pigeons snapping their feathers and all. And she says, West Side Story. And I was like, can I watch that? And she said, yeah, fine, I guess. Because I guess she was just tired of saying no to Goodfellas. Uh, Goodfellas. So I only, I, I knew Goodfellas from Goodfellas. Did not see Goodfellas for several years after that. And the reason I ever saw West Side Story for the first time was because they spoofed it on Goodfellas. And so we went to Blockbuster and rented the original film. It's a twofold answer, West Side Story and Goodfellas, both thanks to Animaniacs. Okay, that's actually pretty funny because mine is twofold. It's not as like connected as yours, but uh, there's two that I felt I needed to say because uh, two, these two things ended up getting tattooed on my body. Uh, because <laughs> one... Uh, we we all saw Space Jam when we were children, mm -hmm. and there was a bit where they reference Pulp Fiction. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I remember being, what is that? It's Pulp Fiction. Okay. D see that many years later, finally. Breaks my brain, makes me want to really become a writer. Uh, I got Ezekiel 2517 tattooed on my right forearm. Uh, so there's that. And then there is an episode of Tiny Toons <laughs> where Jason Voorhees shows up. And I just remember being like, what the hell? Like, as a kid, like, what 
what is happening? Because it's such a different tone than the rest of the show. Because they are, it is a creepy. And I was like, what the hell? And then, like, years later, being at my cousin's house and the Jason movies are marathoned on TV. And I was like, wait, that's what they were doing? That's amazing. And now I have Jason, a bloody Jason Voorhees mask tattooed on my right wrist. Two things from uh, two uh, Looney Tunes, basically, uh, properties, referencing things that would end up getting tattooed on me. So uh, thank you, Tiny Tunes, and thank you, uh, Space Jam. You've made my mom very upset. Every year since 1989, the Library of Congress has selected 25 films to add to the National Film Registry. The criteria? The films must be culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. Each week on You're Missing Out, we take a look at one of these films to try and get to the heart of why they were selected and why they still matter. This week, our favorite music men return to the show. Jeremy Swanton and Kyle Reed Haas are here for 1932's Love Me Tonight. Our guests today are TV and theater creators. Some of their credits include Contact High, the musical, an upcoming TV series, Act of Faith, and the Haas and Swanton YouTube channel, where you can see One Man Wicked. Returning to the show, the team of Haas and Swanton are here to join us to talk about Love Me Tonight. Guys, thank you so much for coming back. Welcome, welcome. Thank you so much for having us. Very grateful. So happy to be be here. I've been waiting until you were on mic and we were recording to let you know that this is true. Uh, out of the pantheon of people we had on season one and even the start of season two, it took a good long while for Singing in the Rain to get knocked out of the top ten episodes. It held on so long. It is a it is a fan favorite episode uh, that you guys brought for last time. We're and very honored. We're very honored. Um, it's probably because I was I said a couple controversial things last time. So yeah, you did. You know. <laughs> did he? I think he implied that, like, uh, he wished that, like, abuse was still okay in the arts because it made art better. In fairness, Kyle, you, uh, minutes after I had talked about Arthur Freed being a known sex pest, forgot I said that and went, Arthur Freed is somebody I really look up to and admire. And had to go, career-wise, not not personally, just want to clarify. So Yeah, he made some some errors in his judgment in his personal life. And thankfully, we're not going to be talking about anybody today who may have made errors in their personal life during, oh, no. I don't know, the Second World War. No. It's only recently that people have been found out to be bad in cinema. Cinema <laughs> was, start, was started yeah. by saints. It was only mm-hmm. until the sinners. Yeah. The sinners came when uh, High Def showed up. That's exactly. Sure, history in general. Everyone was great. And now, until and now recently. all of a sudden, we're lifting up the blanket and there's all these like bed bugs of history. <laughs> oh, wow. People died. Wow. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I just snorted. We're off to a great start. I I think this is good because where are you? Well, last time you guys were well, no, last time you guys were on the show, you weren't back in New York either, right? I think no, you right. Just, we're still not back. Last time you were, you had just left, and now and now we're still fucking here. Now we're Midwesterners. <laughs> now we're mid in the Midwest. Yeah, I look so Midwest, don't I? You know, you guys have got facial hair going on now. It's yeah. you. You guys look like you were born out of a puddle in Brooklyn. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, thank you. You know, I really it's, appreciate that. No, I think it's I, I It is like since the last time I saw you guys, you look exactly how you would costume people to show the passage of time. Oh, when it's like, oh, these characters are coming back after like two seasons off the air. How do you show that like they've had personal growth and a journey, which is all really good for us to point out on this audio medium. I think that's a really smart choice. Uh, we'll leave that to the imagination of yeah no true it's like it's like a it's like a radio drama like like they can their imagination will come up with these images that will exceed what an actual image of what we look like now could possibly convey i'm gonna say it i'm putting out a call for fan art fans uh just what do you think they look like uh just send it in our parents don't know how to draw (laughs) (laughs) even better even better It's funny, you guys may have forgotten this, but in fact, way back when you were on for Singing in the Rain, Mm -hmm. well over a year ago, I had had talked to you, I think Jeremy and I had spoken after the show or texted, and I had said, like, this might be fun. You guys had just come on for arguably the most famous movie musical of all time Mm -hmm. in season one, which is Singing in the Rain. We had two musicals in season one. We had Singing in the Rain and Wizard of Oz. And in fact, uh, technically, Jeremy is a part of both episodes. Because uh, yeah. he he performed a full one man Wizard of Oz for us, which was a trip and a half to receive the in progress pictures of, especially because I had forgotten we talked about it, and just got a picture of Jeremy in a lion suit one day, and was just like, what 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 is happening? But I um, commit, I commit. Yeah, he commits. <laughs> That's so but, rude of you to out me like that. How dare you? <laughs> um, but we uh we you know you're on for the most famous movie musical, and this season. One of the movie musicals we have, Love Me Tonight, a, a Robert Mamoulian directed, Rogers and Hart composed, Maurice Chevalier musical um, that, and I, I'm not saying this to be disrespectful, but I think if you went to most people, even people who consider themselves cinephiles, and you said, name the greatest movie musicals, they're going down a long list before it gets to this. If at all, it's not a particularly well-known title today. And yet, in 1990, in the second year of the registry, it was inducted. So I thought that would be super interesting to kind of have you guys come from having just done, well, yeah. just in the scheme of the show, uh, just done one of the most famous movie musicals, and now get into, well, here is this important and influential film that is not, uh, there's no Love Me Tonight section of the great movie ride, you know? There's no... no. There's no anything section of the great movie ride anymore. This but is it, true. It's available at the Wheaton Public Library, which is the which great is, movie ride. Know, no, no, they moved it to Wheaton. Well, <laughs> I mean, I wish. I wish <laughs> too. That was my favorite ride. I'm still not over it. Thanks for bringing it up. I'm crying behind my glasses. It's, it's now. gone. The great yeah. movie ride. Gone. Yes, they they re- replaced it with some like shitty Mickey Minnie thing. That, that Mickey Minnie ride's pretty good though. I'll tell you. Is it? I don't. Really I don't care. Cool. It's shitty in my book because it's not really good. <laughs> but no, I, uh, I, I, but I totally just uh, derailed your point with uh, with my great movie ride fandom. No. To Mike's point, I literally never heard of this movie. Yeah, never heard of it. Like I, I, I haven't seen a lot of musicals. But that was the thing we talked about last time. But like I've, I've heard of many musicals. I've heard of Singing in the Rain before we did it. You know, I've heard of some. Of, I literally had no idea what I was getting into with this movie. Right. We also had never heard of it. Well, I when yeah. I you said you asked me if I I can't say his name. Can you say his name for me? Chevalier. Chevalier. Maurice Chevalier. Yeah, I assumed that you were gonna ask us to watch Gigi, but um, because that. 
that's a future season. Um, okay. And that's its own bag of worms uh, for that song. Uh-huh. In fact, we shouldn't tell Tom anything about Gigi, and we should just live record him watching that opening oh, song and yeah. trying to process that uh, <laughs> everything going on with that. You know, but, you know, I mean, this is the thing that's so interesting about this to me, um, and we'll get into it, but I wanted to guys have, have you guys on for it. I'm so glad uh, we were able to work this out. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I know you guys are busy as hell with all of the credits that we lifted up, listed up top and the presumably five other things that you guys have going on, because I feel like uh, yeah. every time we talk, you've got some new thing going on. We're always happy to make time for you guys. We love you guys. Yeah. Oh, thank yeah. you. And it truly is an honor when we get asked to come do stuff like this because it doesn't really happen as often as you'd think. Uh, people don't ask Hass and Swanton to come do stuff very often. Well, that's their goddamn problem. And uh, it's <laughs> our benefit. And uh, I'm very glad we got the uh, the gay musical uh, Young Bucks to come uh, talk to us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that, no that, that is our official uh, subtitle. I mean, it's Pride Month, you know, so we, you know, we had to. Uh, to clarify, by the way, gentlemen, gentlemen, the Young Bucks are a wrestling tag team. He wasn't just using 1930s slang at you. Oh, okay, I thought it was slang. Definitely no. thought it was like what? If... <laughs> just look, just, just start... look up pictures of the Young Bucks, and you guys okay. will be like, "Yeah, no, he's 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 right." Okay. Anyway, I thought it was like Young Bucks, like yeah, you know, like deer. Maybe that's next season as a bonus. Is we we get. Kyle and Jeremy back out here, and they sit with Tom and watch an old '30s musical, and then watch an all elite wrestling pay per view, and we just get the. the I'm down. I'm honestly uh, down. I know we're we're on a tangent and away from the agenda, but I still have to. I have to be a little bit more ADHD because I guess that's the what we're calling all of ADD now. Um, and Jeremy, what's the scene in Angels in America when um? They're they're from the ghosts from the past, and they they are trying to like communicate that he's gay. And there's like a do you remember what the word is where they finally get that he's gay? Because they they like he says queer sodomite. and they don't yeah sodomite yeah they're like they're like they're like he's calling himself queer and they don't get it. He's calling himself gay and they don't get it. And then he leaves and they're like oh that young fellow was a sodomite. You know I didn't now know the were playing tonight, but I did know the line <laughs> i am pretty proud of and that. now i give it back to you i know you've got an agenda Listen, we, 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 we all got the things we're good at it's fine yeah <laughs> young buck he was yeah. a young buck that was my point he was a young buck indeed it's i also hate tom that now it is kind of all i can see you know kyle is doing the the matt jackson young bucks facial have you guys considered becoming a pro wrestling tag team have yeah you thought about it course, okay good course, all right yeah. good I think all gay couples do. You know? I, I can't wait to see the one-man show Jeremy puts on of the Hangman Adam Page story. <laughs> no, actually, take it back. Guys, Macho Man Randy Savage musical. Get working on it. I want it to start. Right. Uh, well, okay. But you have to use Rob Zombie lyrics. What happened to um, <laughs> okay. our musical, Mike? I, you oh, know, yeah. oh, right. About the, have the you been working explosion. on the book? Because we've been working on the score. Have you? Prove it right now. I, right I, could. I can't because oh, we're God. using our audio, the audio of my laptop okay. to do well, this. But I swear to God, I wrote it. I wrote a. I wrote a motif. I wrote a light motif. <laughs> you really did. It was trippy. All right, so let's get into this. Uh, we're going to talk about Love Me Tonight, but before we talk about what we thought about the film, uh, let's hear what the registry had to say. Here's what the Library of Congress had to say about Love Me Tonight. According to director Ruben Mamoulian. Paramount executive Adolf Zucker hurried Love Me Tonight into production to keep two of his more expensive contract players, 
Maurice Chevalier and Jeanette MacDonald, from sitting idle. If Mamoulian rushed, it doesn't show in what historians consider one of the most original of 1930s musicals, Love Me Tonight. By pre-recording the entire score, Mamoulian, who was influenced by the work of Ernst Lubitsch and René Clair, combined sound and image with more fluidity than most early musicals achieved. Songs by Rodgers and Hart, including Isn't It Romantic and Mimi, and an effervescent script filled with risque innuendo are brought to life by Chevalier's saucy charm and McDonald's angelic voice and beauty. So that's what the National Film Registry had to say. Also, gentlemen, if you want me to go back and redo your intro to say that you guys also have saucy charm, just let me know. You know, I'm sure we can we can edit that in because what a description of a person. Yeah, I want, I, I want that. Saucy charm. So was this all three of you guys? Uh, was this your first exposure to Maurice Chevalier? Were you familiar with Maurice Chevalier before? Um, I guess he's the guy from Gigi. I'd heard the name before, yeah, I, but I I hadn't like seen him in anything, no. So this was like my first like exposure, you know, like to him. I'd say yeah. This was uh my first exposure too. Um, and because I didn't know anything about this, I just went in blind. I don't know why the name Maurice Chevalier popped into my head while watching. I'm like, is is I feel like this guy's named Maurice Chevalier, and then I looked it up. I was like, holy shit, I was right. Um. <laughs> So yeah, uh, first time, but yeah, I've, I don't know where I've heard the name before. It was just in this broken brain of mine somewhere. He's he's one of those names from early Hollywood that I think like well after his films lost. It's the same way like a lot of us who were just adjacent to pop culture, the name Valentino still means something. Or even before you see the films like Charlie Chaplin or Alfred Hitchcock, like these names that just kind of meant something. Now, Jeremy and Kyle, I hate to correct you. But I think you actually have heard Maurice Chevalier before, even if you don't know it. Tell, right, me. tell us all about it. Do you happen to remember a song that goes, Which pet's address is the finest in Paris? Which pets possess the longest pedigree? Naturellement, the Aristocats. That's right. Maurice Chevalier sang the opening theme to the Aristocats, and that's his last credit before he died. Aww. So, yes. Uh, so you do know him. Uh, you know, you've, you've heard his voice presumably growing up and maybe noticed that for some reason the, the rhyme is supposed to be which pet's address is the finest in Paris and then longest pedigree. But for some reason, he pronounces the S in Paris. So it throws off the rhyme. I have a note about um, about him fucking up a, what could have been a great rhyme. <laughs> in my notes because I take notes. Uh, but also, yeah. isn't Aristocats uh, Walt's last credit? Or am I tripping? Jungle Book was the last okay. film that he worked on, and Happiest Millionaire was the last film, I think, that came out while he was alive. Okay, so I'm just off. What, is it the first after he died? Is that what my brain is doing? Maybe? Okay. Maybe when is Aristocats? Is that 68? So then maybe. Does someone else want to Google it? When are we going to learn, lazy? like, cats and movies are, like, just not, like, like are you, know, you are you Garland. trying to plug no, no, Judy Garland's that movie, we talk remember? about cats the movie now what no, Judy Garland's, Judy Garland's movie. Remember, she did the animated movie about cats. oh uh gay paris yeah gay paris yeah, happy pride movie, month yes do a cat movie everything goes to shit i think is the moral I, that's that's not true of that darn cat or the cat from outer space so i i hope you reconsider your assessment all right i'll reconsider okay, maybe well, animated cat movie yes because cats don't dance was not successful either but uh no 
Um, but th- no, I uh, what was I gonna say? There's a there's a scene in the well, it's in the movie where he rhymes romance with France. <laughs> I it's it's that accent's doing a lot of heavy lifting with those rhymes, huh? <sighs> well, this is the thing that's fascinating about this film. When I went into it uh, the first time, because I had watched this like a year ago, because uh, I knew it was on the registry and I wanted to get to know it, and at the time I kind of just assumed it was only in the registry. Uh, because, well, you have to get a Maurice Chevalier in there, right? He was one of the biggest stars of the 30s. Um, And then I started to dig into this film more and its history and its importance in, you know, movie musical history and all of the innovations in it. And it's funny, I had mentioned to Tom, because I watched Love Me Tonight like a year ago, and then proceeded to watch a number of the other Chevalier films that came before it. Mm-hmm. Um, because they mention Ernst Lubitsch in the description. Uh, Lubitsch had made the previous Jeanette McDonald, um, Maurice Chevalier films, uh, The Smiling Lieutenant, One Hour with You, both of which were Best Picture nominees the previous year. You know, so he had done a number of these movies already, and they were all kind of the same thing, which is he's playing different characters and they have different plots, but really you're there to watch Maurice Chevalier do his shtick in pre-code sex comedies that are varying degrees of raunchy. Like they're they're truly um, you know, I, I said to Tom, I think this morning, like Chevalier's career existed to give Will Hayes a heart attack. They're all movies that you watch now and go like, I'm impressed. Uh I think what is it? Um Smiling Lieutenant has a full musical number called Jazz Up Your Lingerie. Ooh. Yeah. They're, they're, you know, for 1930s, they're a little, you know, one of the, uh, what is it? One Hour With You is fun because the entire premise of that is Chevalier plays a, a doctor, I think, who is deeply in love with and faithful to his wife. But everybody assumes he's cheating on her because he's Maurice Chevalier and he just gives off that vibe. <laughs> so there's a ton of gags in the movie where he's just like, well, uh, no, I mean, of course, uh, nothing's going on. I love my wife. And another guy just goes, all right, but come on. <laughs> and that's the bit for the whole movie. It's kind of great. That is awesome, actually. That's really funny. <laughs> so I watched a bunch of these Chevalier films, and then Tom watched Love Me Tonight and was like, there's some great gags in this. And I kind of, I guess I had forgotten, having watched the previous Chevalier films, the, the Lubitsch films, that are just kind of like, oh, we're just Chevalier doing gags. I had kind of forgotten just how clever and looney tunesy and very silly this movie is that's what oh, yeah. i you know not going in going into this movie knowing nothing about it i was like this is this is just a straight up cartoon it's it's yeah. just it's there's like some straight up looney tunes gags in this movie and i was like that's why didn't anyone tell me about this and mike's <laughs> gonna probably tell me oh well i told you a year ago after i watched it and i'd be like hey, shut up i was hungover i forgot it was, uh, and, and even at the beginning of the movie, you don't even really get a sense of that because it feels like an old, like, neorealistic Italian movie. Or like, I feel like they took this for the beginning of Beauty and the Beast. Oh, which yeah. is walking yeah, that's, yeah, that's in our that's yeah. in our notes for sure. Actually, the director of the 2017 live action remake said he looked at this movie deliberately. Oh yeah, I mean it's it's it it just feels like so much in the DNA of like of Beauty and the Beast cartoon and the movie the live action one, but oh, also yeah. like it had this feel of like 
an Italian, like, neorealist sort of movie where it's like, oh, everybody knows each other. And, hey, yeah, we're like, just, you know, we're on, doesn't feel like we're on sets or anything. And he's just walking through town and talking to everybody. And then it becomes a fucking Looney Tunes farce. And I'm, I was just like, this is great. I, I would watch more of these things if I knew that this is what they were. Well, that what you just said is like, uh, in general with musical theater and musical film, my whole thing. Like, I want to make it more accessible for people because I feel like there's just a cultural notion about the art form that it's, like, boring and stupid. And for my sister to do at in her, like, middle school show, like, <laughs> she, she's Woodstock and Charlie Brown and at her middle school, and it's boring and bad. And uh, I actually think that this art form is incredible. But the thing about the musical is that it's really hard to get right as an artist. So what you're left with is a lot of really bad musicals and a a few really good ones in the grand scheme of things. It's, you know, to talk about Rodgers and Hart is exciting historically, because uh, they, you you have um, Hammerstein and Kerm working together, and Rodgers and Hart working together, and both teams are kind of figuring out what a musical even is and then when Rodgers and Hammerstein come together obviously it's magnetic and amazing for the time I know a lot of people find their shows boring now but if you look at it in context oh trust me we're gonna do Oklahoma in a future season and I cannot wait for Tom's reaction to Oklahoma it's going to be one of the greatest transitions from all right yeah they're singing about cowboys who holy shit this is dark oh yeah right right and that like, was that was their gonna, are you gonna say their first Oklahoma? Yes, you have to. Honestly, when listen, here's my here's my take. Here's my hot take. Tom and I would make a decent curly and Judd is all I'm saying. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Wait, we'll do it. We'll do a whole right? video drama uh production here on your we show. Should, absolutely. Will it be in the public domain by then? I don't know. I feel like I'm at the bar again, and and the girls around me are talking in <laughs> Spanish, and I'm just like, yeah, sure, I know exactly what you guys are saying. You guys right, are totally Tom, not making fun of me right real now. Real quick, Tom, Tom, Oklahoma is a musical about a feud between uh, cowboys and and farmers, and it ends with a town conspiring to cover up a murder because nobody liked the guy who got stabbed. So it's Heaven's Gate. Kinda, it it's kind of Heaven's Gate. Okay, I mean it can't be any worse than Heaven's Gate, so you know it's <laughs> no, a plus. No, it's 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 wild. It's nuts. Um, I mean, I guess I shouldn't shit talk Michael Cimino in uh, Pride Month now that it's just come out that he's well, she is trans. So I guess uh, you know sorry. it's tough in in Cimino's private life identified one way, public life identified. It's a whole complicated thing. The book just came out. I haven't read it yet. But in any event, we should talk a little bit up top because I think that some people there are people listening who if I if I can put you guys on the spot, uh, Jeremy Kyle. There are some people listening who probably know the same way that they know the name Maurice Chevalier, even if they don't know the biography, probably know the name Rogers and Hammerstein. Yeah. But maybe don't realize that when we're saying Rogers and Hart, that that is the same. The same well, that it's obviously it's, it's the pairing of Richard Rogers. Right. And Brett, the hitman Hart. Um, right. And they had best, very best different careers. Was, after. Best there ever yeah. is, best there ever will be. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of, lot of wrestling um, talk on this you, Chevalier you, show. But you, no, if you guys so wouldn't you mind say, talking a bit about you know, you say, You say listeners, uh, one of the podcasters is actually saying, I didn't know any of that. So enlighten <laughs> yeah. one of the morons on Mike. So um, it, it was really cool watching this movie because it was it's like – before the real golden age of musicals like took off and Oklahoma's like kind of like the golden age like start I'd say you know like Showbo yeah you like know? people say both... historians pretentious historians dispute Showboat or Oklahoma it doesn't really matter 
one gave rise to the other. Right. No. And so, um, uh, Rogers, um, you know, wrote the music and then Hammerstein, you know, did the lyrics and stuff like that. Um, and so, uh, they were very iconic, um, for like just being spearheaded. They, they spearheaded what, uh, the golden age of musicals was they were taking on um controversial material and um you know trying to make it accessible to the to the public while uh people are dancing around in tights so you know (laughs) well i think they they uh even if the material itself wasn't controversial and um I, I, I like the way that Sondheim words it when he talks about it talked i guess he's dead uh people tell i haven't accepted it um He's still alive. I like the way he words it when he talks about this topic. He says, you know, the characters may have been naive, is how he words it, and the subject matter might not be accessible now. And he certainly, Sondheim, I think, piggyback, well, I'll finish my first thought, but he he was trained by Hammerstein. So, um, so he had a lot of respect for him. He'd talk about him a lot. And he says that although their characters may be naive, their subject matter might not be accessible to people now. Um, what is so exciting about their work in context to the time period is uh, they further the story with the music. They get you somewhere with the songs. They have characters. You, you know, it's it's not just that there there is a story and it may or may not be exciting in their songs and they may or not may or may not be good. It's that. Uh, you're actually finding ex- the the plot is furthered in an exciting way through the songs being sung in the same way that a film score can further um, a scene and heighten the drama and raise the stakes. And that the, the art of lyric can do that as much as music. So when we look at these pre, that we call that the golden age of musical theater is, so the, both these teams, um, I, I guess it's uh, Hammerstein and Kern are showboat, right? Or is it Hammerstein and someone else? Um, Isn't Kern show? I think Kern showboat. Yeah, yeah, I think it's Hammerstein and Kern. They do they do that with showboat. Showboat is very much a story furthered by its music. It's heavy subject matter. It, um, it's about like a woman who's white passing, um, and she, her half sister is white, and there's this whole and and the the, the central drama being around. Uh, the circumstances of their like ethnic backgrounds changing how they're treated in society. We'll be doing Showboat on a future season too. I love the to be the registry. I love yeah. Showboat, but the but and I don't remember what Roger what piece it is that Rogers and Hart do that is credited as also really breaking ground in that area. But then I know when obviously when Rogers and Hammerstein come together and do um do uh, Oklahoma then they they're crapping out all these amazing musicals where it's exciting and intense and furthered by the fact that you've got characters singing um like uh soliloquizing um and uh is that a word i guess um yeah uh, i i mean well well something that was really important to them too was adding the the dance and the ballet yeah furthering to, story you know, with dance they wanted to they saw a lot of people saw it as three separate mediums, you know, like you have your musical show, you have your, your drama. That's the Cole Porter your, musical. Um, you know, your, your dance show. And so they were like, why can't we just do everything together? And so. And, and it wouldn't it be cool exciting if ballet can be um, telling an exciting, dramatic, high stakes story with cultural resonance and an opera can be doing that and song can be doing that and plays can be doing that. Then then why can't the musical, which at the time was called the musical comedy, 
Yeah. Um, why can't the musical do that too? And be and why can't there be a musical drama? And uh, that's where you get the birth of this incredible and I would say severely misunderstood art form. And it's it's interesting you said because one thing I you know think I mean obviously when you talk about the importance of Rodgers and Hammerstein now Tom for the the sake of example like you know one of the things that sometimes you would complain about with movie musicals. And and like something I, I think you expressed with with Top Hat to some degree and other movie musicals we watched in, in college and other times is that it feels like it kind of will stop and do a song and then pick up again, right? Or and yeah, then, that, yeah. a, that a character will start by going, I'm feeling this emotion, and then sing a song feeling that emotion, and then end and move on. But with, with Roger and Hammerstein, I mean... Mine isn't the, Mimi. Yes, it is. I'm going to sing a song about <laughs> yeah. it. <laughs> but with Rodgers and Hammerstein, I mean, you know, the, the perfect example, the, the thing I think is is so good, and I've, uh, I'm pretty sure I, Tom still has my DVD of this movie because I wanted to get him to watch for so long, is, is with, you know, it's it's cliche to say, but with Carousel, the yeah. soliloquy in Carousel is is one of the perfect examples of, so for context, Tom, you've got this scene that begins with a, a, a criminal, right? Billy Bigelow, he's a, uh, just a low-rent criminal who finds out that his girlfriend is pregnant. And he starts thinking about, like, she's pregnant and starts singing this very triumphant kind of song of the my boy Bill will be tall and as tough as a tree um, and all that. Then realizes, what if it's a girl? And suddenly the song shifts and he's very gentle and very, you know, my little girl, pink and white. And Then realizes, like, if I'm going to have a kid, I got to step up. I got to be a man. And it becomes triumphant. I got to do something before... And the beauty of a moment like that, you know, is it's the antithesis of what you complain about with some musical numbers is that, like, we get to watch somebody go through this emotional journey. You know, I mean, uh, you know, you just saw West Side Story earlier this, uh, you know, last year. And that kind of feeling of when he's singing about, you know, just meeting this girl named Maria and all that. Imagine that, but also that we get to watch it change and the emotions change. That's really, I think, you know, too, like what they bring to it. And while you don't see that a lot in this film with what Rogers and Hart do, I do think that what it does do is that it does manage to use the film medium and editing to make these songs, I hate to put it this way, but to make these songs less boring yeah no in terms of like it's telling a story yeah i definitely i could see like the seeds of where they were going to go you know like where i mean rogers was going to go you know um well i think both both of them but but, especially richard rogers yeah um especially with the opening number of this movie you know yeah Um, with it's funny that i read on wikipedia it's there was i guess an implication on wikipedia the reason this ended up in the registry was isn't it romantic yes editing and different characters and that that whole circle of life sequence i made a joke it was like the live action lion king with um like simba's main being in the giraffe shit (laughs) um but that that uh that sequence, I guess, is was the groundbreaking thing that qualified it for the registry. But I also feel like the opening number and the use of the city sounds creating the like the orchestra of mm-hmm. the city, I thought was also pretty groundbreaking. And you see its influence in a million things that I, I wrote a list like uh, in like, the Heights, especially in the Heights yeah. opens like that. I, I, I wrote down Trash in the Camp even. It's that whole <laughs> using like sound, like just everyday sounds to create music. 
and the opening of the film Hello Dolly, Music Man with Rock Island and the piano lesson. Um, And and not just what we were just talking about, and you took the words right out of my mouth using um, soliloquy from Paracel. If if you'd allowed me to keep like running my mouth about this topic, I would have eventually talked about soliloquy, which is one of my favorite moments still in a musical because, uh, well, I cry every time I watch that scene or listen to it because uh, this man uh, who is just like a jerk and a mess, um, the realization that he has, uh, you know, that he's going to have a child completely changing him. I mean, the, the music documents the change, the lyrics document the change. It's one of the most incredible scenes. Um, and, uh, and I, like I always say, that's the moment that, that made musicals like Les Mis possible, like that scene. And an entire, an entire medium came from soliloquy, but, um, but also not just furthering the story with music, but like you said, using this medium of film and the medium of theater in different ways, there's other things that we can do to use music to tell a story in film and theater. And uh, the experimentation there that you see in a lot of pieces in the, in the 30s leading to in the 40s it sort of being mastered by the same people is really exciting to watch. You see what they're doing here in this movie with the um, with the sounds of the city becoming the song mm-hmm. and in Isn't It Romantic? And uh, I, I, there was another moment that I thought they used music in a really interesting way. You mm-hmm. see that. I don't know if it was Mimi. Um, but you see that in other films, um, like Jeremy said, like uh, Music Man, which was a stage show, the the way that they use music creatively to, to further the story and to tell the story, whether or not they're furthering it, um, just the fact that the music comes in in a creative way. Uh, I was like, I wonder if this movie um, inspired that. And Tom, what you said about Beauty and the Beast, I mean, I was like, I bet Howard Ashman loved this movie. I feel like Maurice Chevalier inspired Lumiere. Oh, oh I mean, uh, yeah. there's no no doubt in my mind that that he's L- Lumiere, and uh, Hugh and McGregor was definitely trying that in the live action one. Don't know if he was successful, but uh, I you know Bill Condon definitely was definitely you know he knew those guys who made the cartoon were looking at this one and probably threw it at some of the some of the cast to uh uh look at that. And uh, if it, and listen, if an idiot like me who knows nothing about this kind of shit can connect those two dots. That I mean, it, it that the impact of this movie, and you know all the deeper stuff you guys are talking about, really has to be monumental. If someone as much of an amateur in this world can, you know, connect those dots, you know, just right there alone, this this earns it a place in the National Film Registry. You know, and a bit of context that I want us all to think about here. So the staging, we were talking about the editing of this film being really impressive, and the use of like the the, the sounds of the city coming together to form the music. There's a lot of stuff about this and, and how it is as a, as a movie musical that is so impressive. And we're impressed by it watching it now. And I think an important thing to remember is this movie's 1932. The yeah. jazz singer is only five years ago. Yeah, we're still uh, in the early days. And um, you could definitely, not to say it's a poorly made movie, you know, but you could definitely tell this is an early days of the talkies movie where yeah, it's... Um, yeah. A little rougher around the edges than you might, uh, than you'll see even, you know, five years later or whatever the fuck, you know. And then by the time we get to what we covered, Singing in the Rain, you know, we've got this shit really down pat. Well, it's worth noting, 
there's a real there's a real world singing in the rain moment in this movie that I yeah, assume yeah. some of you guys caught, which is that he misses his mic at one point. Two thousand percent, yeah. In general, <laughs> I felt too. like we were watching I, the I dancing like, yeah, cavalier. That's what I want to say. Like set wise, even you know what I mean. It looked like it was taken from so, well. So then Gene Kelly was definitely like, hey, so I remember watching uh, Love Me Tonight, and that French guy he missed his mark. I'm gonna, so I'm well, there gonna, is I'm take yeah. it to task for that. There's a moment he's doing that number. I forget the title right now, or maybe I I think I remember the title and I don't want to say it. The point is, it's a 1932. He's doing this number, which I think is beautifully staged. Um, because part of what's worth noting too, to talk about musical history, Robert Mamoulian, Robert, I keep saying Robert, Ruben Mamoulian, was a stage director as well as a film director, and one of the famous landmark productions that he staged was Porgy, the play that would become Porgy and Bess, mm-hmm. uh, the, the famous um, Gershwin opera. And one of the things that, that Mamoulian did in that, that he brought to film, was that he became fascinated by the footlights yeah. on the stage, and he would ramp up the footlights to cast these odd expressionistic shadows on the stage. And he brought that with him to this film. So when Chevalier is doing that number about, you know, the guy, the miscreant who gets executed and all that, right. all those long, gorgeous fucking horror movie shadows behind him, that's, that's Mamoulian's thing. But in that moment when he's doing that, it's one of the only songs that they recorded live on the set or Chevalier's vocals live on the set. And at one point, he bends down, like he's he's getting his head chopped off in the scene, right? You know, the, he's pantomiming, head chopped off, du- you know, bends forward and then turns his head away. And when he does, he's off mic. Yep. So you hear his sound come swinging back in as he turns around, which is such a great early cinema thing. That was um, one of my favorite, like, visual shots in the entire movie. I loved the shadows and the, the way that it looked. I thought it was so theatrical and I thought it was just beautiful. And the way they ca- captured it with the camera moving moving back oh, in, yeah. in, um, in and out to, to get the shadow and get the close-up. And I love that you said like horror movie because it, it definitely felt like a horror movie at times. Like when they're looking you directly in the, oh, the, the weird, eyes. Can we talk about the I mean? weird like sisters the weird... that like... Oh, Oh yeah. yes, the the Macbeth. Well, the yeah. here's a crazy thing. It's funny. We'll talk about this right now because it's funny you mention horror movies. Let's talk a bit about Ruben Mamoulian, why he's in this. So Ernst Lubitsch had directed the previous uh, Chevalier films, and look, we love Ernst Lubitsch. We did we did Ernst Lubitsch's Ninochka uh, earlier in the season, mm-hmm. another film that romanticizes Paris. Um, we love Lubitsch, but Lubitsch's Chevalier films were kind of on the rails. They were kind of just like, look, this is what's going to be. We're going to have a plot. It's going to be a lot of body shit. And mostly Maurice is going to sing to the camera and we move on. Mamoulian gets brought in and initially he wasn't sure he wanted to do it because he was exhausted from having just finished making uh, a very similar film to this. Tom, what was uh, Ruben Mamoulian's last film before this? Oh, uh, a little movie called uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. The most influential sound horror film that, like, wasn't made by Universal. The Frederick March, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, first horror film to win any Oscars, won Frederick March the Oscar for lead actor. So Mamoulian had just finished essentially revolutionizing the horror film and then rolled into this. So when you see these, like, expressionistic touches, like you guys were talking about, the the the, the sisters, you know, the Macbeth-type sisters, like, that's 
him essentially going like, well, we went maximalist in this horror film. Can I take that same maximalism and put it in this other medium? It reminded me of Ed Wood a little bit. Yes. With oh, the, yeah. Like the with the like Glenn or Glenda moment with the pull the strings, you know, where it's like this does not feel like the same movie. <laughs> but that's, I mean, the beauty of this film, I think, uh, is that there it it kind of is just whatever it wants to be at any moment yeah. in, in a way that's fun. I think that's one of the things that really uh, caught my attention with this movie is that, um, you know, it's a musical it's in, and it's getting this theatrical quality to it, which, uh, you know, Ruben Mamoulian kind of understands that, you know, on the stage, you already have this immediate sense of uh, you have to suspend your disbelief in a gigantic way, because obviously, yes, there's not even the screen to like, separate you it's like okay i have to pretend that these guys are actually in france or whatever so why don't we take that level of suspension of disbelief and bring it to the movies because we can really go in on the on the insanity and how unreal everything is and just add this like i said it's like looney tunes but you never you never lose like your um, uh, connection to the story or anything no. Uh, so you can have the, the Macbeth sisters or, you know, the, the shadows or, you know, just like the these... in front of the train. Yeah. The front, oh, the, the train scene so good. Or, like Mike, or like Mike said, to the, the bit with the painting that falls off the wall. Oh, yeah, we haven't gotten to that yet. My favorite gag in the movie. Or, uh, or, my, favorite, my, amazing. or my favorite gag in the movie is with the horse. And it's like, no, that's Solid not the bad horse. horse. This is the bad horse. And it's in a tiny little fucking barn. Yeah. Just completely chained together with like the chains you would like try to tie down a Greek god with, and it's just it starts kicking the walls out and everything, and just like this is ridiculous. But you know what? I love it because it's not real. It's not trying to be real. It's just trying to entertain you, like like a musical would. We know people don't burst out into song. I mean, obviously, I can't speak to you guys. You know, I don't know what gay people do. So you know, what what do I? Know? Oh, we do. Um, gay people burst out into song, but I do. Okay. I will. I, okay, I I fucking I fucking knew it, Mike. You owe me twenty bucks. You son um. of a bitch. You tried to lie to me this whole time. I known him. That you don't break out into songs, asshole. I don't know what bisexual people do. We hum. We just hum. They tap their toes. We quietly hum to ourselves. Um, no, but they just complain. They complain. Um, I was going to say that the whole when when we talk about like suspension of disbelief in a musical, um, this conversation bringing it back to this conversation we're having about Rodgers and Hammerstein, um, I I do think uh, there are. Maybe it's because I was brought up with musicals and my parents were a big fan, big fans of the like 90s blockbuster musicals, the 80s, 90s blockbuster shows like the all the Cameron Macintosh things like Blame Is and Phantom and all that. So I, I was a toddler when I was being brought up on all of that. And I never had to suspend my disbelief with a musical. But also I feel like in our culture, um, if you watch the Disney movies, um, you know, and of the, the Disney Renaissance, then you've got that in your in your uh history or, uh, as well and you, that's influencing how you take these stories in so i do think that contemporary audiences can can enjoy a musical and like they can a lot of a lot of times they don't i've noticed um and not really be caught up on the fact that the characters are singing um but that's a lot of work went into um getting audiences to accept that um, and every time you write a musical, it's still a lot of work to get an audience to accept it. I think a lot of bad musicals of 
now of our of now of now um are bad because people musical theater writers aren't doing that suspension anymore suspension of disbelief horror i feel like we're talking about the dear evan hansen movie you know yeah that was a horror <laughs> you're right well i mean honestly it's it's kind of like to you it feels honestly like these days the kind of the pendulum swung back around to the where people really can't suspend their disbelief with live action musicals anymore and no. it's really we can only buy it with cartoons and you know um other than like the big hamilton explosion a few years back it seems like we don't get I, like we, we've had like a few good movie musicals last year after a dearth of just absolute nightmare fuel like cats and dear evan hansen and just right. all sorts of just garbage lay Mis- the fucking hugh jackman lay miserables where russell crowe is proving to the world that maybe singing was a mistake um right it, the yeah and music in general falls. the crack when he dies well some people like the crack i guess i guess it's like a like contested thing it's now just like wow yeah i didn't know blamers <laughs> needed body horror but i i will say uh in response to what you're saying tom I think that that's less to do with audiences and more to do with artists. I think that Lynn, for example, is a really good musical theater writer or can be when he desires to do so. Um, And uh, sometimes it's not what he's trying to do, but is be a good writer. But when he is, he's really good at it. I would say Hamilton did well because he he understood these rules that are like these kind of age old principles that work in a musical. And he figured out a way to make them contemporary and accessible for people. And I would not say that Pesek and Paul have been spending their time doing that. They know how to capitalize on a moment. Sorry, I'm throwing shade, whatever. I don't care. Um, it's, it's my uh, genuine opinion. Like, I think they write really good music, but I, but I think that these, these principles that were discovered um, bit by bit in this pre-Golden Age era of this movie that we're talking about once they were kind of established and there was a whole decade where the musical was everything in pop culture for the fifties and sixties, some of the sixties, yeah. yeah, I guess at the, 60, in the beginning of the sixties started to die, but the fifties. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I, at least for the fifties, the musical was everything. And um, I think that that was because you had Rogers and Hammerstein kind of quality controlling what the musical was and arguably monopolizing what the musical was. Um, and I think you're right that you get these one-offs like Hamilton. And what was the other? You mentioned another one. Hamilton, you said, oh, well, I, I, maybe you just made me think of it, but I thought Spielberg did a great job remaking yeah. West Side. Well, um, I mean, Spielberg did yeah. a great job with West Side, but even on stage, I mean, before that was Book of Mormon was caught, you know, people's attention. Yeah. Um, but also to kind of tie it back to Hamilton, and I'll make a point about West Side Story is that Hamilton really, even more than a lot of musicals, I think, really heightened the whole suspension of disbelief thing by breaking history and saying, well, we're going to cast people of color in these roles that are historically Mm -hmm. white, which broke a lot of fucking, you know, Facebook uncle's brains. Um, (laughs) But but then you have like West Side Story, which, you know, in my opinion, stone cold masterpiece, but because the constant like mediocrity to outright abomination of mu- movie musicals for the years leading up to it it didn't make any fucking money because at this point people just said well we're done with this shit and, right you know i it's it's just one of those things where i think like the pendulum has swung so far this is a conversation me and mike have all the time audiences with movies today are so now everything needs to be oh it's got to be realistic or oh it's got to reflect my lived in experiences and musicals 
even, uh, you know, unless you force West Side Story onto people, they're just gonna be like, well, it's just, you know, I don't know. I don't want to watch a musical or, you know, it's just, it's, it's this thing where in 1932, people were like, hey, we get it. Movies are fucking fake. Just throw some crazy shit at us and entertain us. And now it's, you yes. got a thousand channels on TV. You got a thousand streaming services, movies coming out your ears. Everything now, everyone has to be well. This movie has to reflect reality now, and you just go well. We're kind of losing the the magic of some yes. straight up nonsense like Love Me Tonight, which not to denigrate it, great, I loved it, but it is ultimately just fun, yeah, entertainment. Yeah. It doesn't have to be a fucking indictment on the Baltimore public school system. You know? I think it's also like I think there's also an element too, though, with this of the musical as a genre. You know, you used to be able to go to the theater, I hate to sound like, back in the day. But, you know, the musical, the Western, the monster movie, like, you went to the theater because you wanted to see a thing, you know. Maurice Chevalier is of an era of star where, um, is of an era of star where, like, whatever they, you just went to see it because you wanted to see them do their thing the same way, like, one of my things I've discovered uh, over the last couple of years is um, is I really enjoy watching Roy Rogers movies. They churned out like 30 movies of singing cowboy Roy Rogers. They were all like 60 minutes a pop. They were B movies. And you would just go to the theater and go like, I don't know, what do you got playing? Well, I'm, I'm gonna, I, I want to go see a musical or I want to go see a Western. And I do think that now one of the things that has happened is that the musical has kind of got it's not just the general public doesn't go i think there's also an element of the musical is dealing with something that i think the horror film genre deals with which is there are passionate fans there is the theater community as well as the horror community and one of the things that tom and i talk about all the time with with horror and i think happens with theater too and i think happens with you know anime too or some of these other like niche genres is that the fan base has now formed around a particular thing and mm-hmm. hypes up a particular thing. And then when it reaches the public, yes, sometimes it becomes Hamilton, right? But sometimes, the same way that, like, you know, Tom and I talk all the time, but, like, a, a horror movie will screen at some festival, get hyped to shit, then we go see it and go, that was nothing. The same way, like, look, it's fun to clown on Cats or Dear Evan Hansen, but the weirder thing about those things is Cats was the longest-running Broadway right. musical. Dear Evan Hansen won Tony's, and then the general public saw it and went, that's what this is? You said this was good. That's what this is? You guys are saying so many interesting things. I'm going to talk too much. You're like, No, making... please. No, it really... Okay, so first of all, everything you said, Tom, extremely resonates with me as someone who worries about the future of this art form I love so much. And, like, extremely. You're actually kind of a musical theater guru, just so you know. <laughs> you're in everything that is a problem with musical theater right now. And um, what you just said, Mike, I think it's true to an extent about um, about musical theater uh, has its its people around it. Um, and it's a serious problem. But what I what I was that what was going to fall out of my mouth as you were talking was, well, the horror fan base is cool and the musical theater fan base sucks. But um, like, like to be completely honest, a lot of them are just mean, bratty people. But um, but I think the reason why is 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 the the root issue of I think what has happened to the musical in America is when it became an educational tool in the schools, and it is so tied to theater education, like the drama teacher and the kinds of kids who end up 
in those programs and their obsession with the art form is about being a star and being in the spotlight. And then they identify with it. They get validated. It's about validation. It's not about quality of the art. And then they they go off to college thinking they're going to be the big star of their program. And it just becomes this huge mess. And it, and then and then I think that Glee actually perfectly captured that with Rachel Berry. I call it the Rachel Berry problem when I'm talking about this thing. She she epitomized the kinds of toxic people that that um now all of the art form is for them. And uh, I mean, worse, Karen Cartwright. Yeah, Karen Cartwright Karen is another great Broadway example. Broadway show, Smash. and then she freaking leaves. Yeah, like, and and it's. It, and same thing, Rachel Berry does right. the same thing. She gets her dream role in the first revival of Funny Girl. Let's not go there with Beanie. Um, and ground <laughs> <laughs> to cover now that you that you've played. Um, but then, uh, but then she leaves as soon as she gets the role. And but the the problem is these people. Sorry to generalize. It's a lot of exceptions, and I've met a lot of wonderful people in the theater. They aren't interested in a good show. They're interested in a good role. They're interested. Yes! in yes and to bring it full circle to what you're saying about having fun tom like like having a lot of vocal technique for example is a great party trick it's like being like double jointed or burping the alphabet but it doesn't really interest me on a deeper level if you can like hit a bunch of high notes using proper vocal technique and it seems to be a lot of the people i meet in the musical theater world now that's all they're here for um, they're here for the party tricks of I've learned the craft. And where does that come from? Well, how did you become popular in your high school theater program by being the best singer? So their whole obsession with this art form has nothing to do with the art form itself. But Tom really made me think about it as he, he's talking as someone who wants to appreciate musical theater, but um, but is having a hard time with it with a lot of these these crap. Like you said, most I, I always say most musicals are bad. And it's just because of the history of the art form so far. Like, you've got the pre-Golden Age musicals that were either forgotten or we remember some of the melodies. Yeah. Cole Porter wrote some great songs. Have a story, though, Berlin wrote some incredible way. stuff. But, they, yeah, they, they don't really have a story in the same way. And then you've got, uh, you know, Rodgers and Hammerstein in their glory for a second. And a, like, like Sondheim says, a lot of their characters in the content of the story isn't accessible now. And you got a Daniel Fish it, like the Daniel Fish revival of Oklahoma, which subverted everything uh, without subverting it, if we're being honest. And then you've got what Sondheim was doing, which is really cool. Most people like Sondheim. He was trained by Hammerstein, so he was just piggybacking off of that. But can you hum him? But can you hum him? Um, they say no. And Jerry Herman said in his Tony speech that was why uh, he beat Sonny in the Park with... Uh, right, Lacage. Which Sondheim apparently took very well from what I read. It was definitely chill about it. He didn't at all write an entire song about it. Um, no, but after that, you don't see people really trying to break ground with the medium um, until Jonathan Larson, who dies right away, Lynn, who did Hamilton, and that was that recent because musicals now, they're so people don't want to invest money in it. It takes a decade to get a musical to Broadway. As a writer, you have to pretend like you've been writing it for a decade and like make insignificant tweaks to get investors to think, oh, it's still in development. And it's this stupid asinine game, game now. And um, and you can't predict 10 years out what's going to resonate with audiences. Like it, so it, it, you, you have one-offs like that shake up the art form, like hair you mentioned, mm -hmm. chorus line in the 70s, mm -hmm. in the 80s, what was it? Like, I guess, it, I guess- Phantom yeah, I guess Phantom Lane, all the, the, the Cameron McIntosh, yeah. You know? And then you've got in the 90s, Rent, shaking it up. And then in the 2000s, Spring Awakening, I'd say, is the show that really shook it up. 
and then 2010's Book of Mormon, like you said. I mean, wouldn't you also say, and I'm, I, this is totally yeah, off topic, really, wouldn't you also say that perhaps in a negative way, the thing that shakes up the 2000s is the producers? Yeah. And the yeah. fact that, like, the producers comes Maybe. out, wins record Tonys, and suddenly everybody's going, what movies can we put songs on and put right. it on a stage? Yeah. And we get, you know, fucking shrek the musical and shit like i feel like that was a big thing that happened after the producers came out you're right but i will say in general it's just that if you look at the history of the musical there hasn't been there it's just been a bad bad luck for this art form to and for people to really take a look at what makes it work so people accidentally get these hits and usually the the people who write those one-off shows i mentioned that's their only big show usually i mean like hamlish did some movie he Hamlet just mostly was known for chorus line those guys who wrote hair i can't remember their names off the top of my head but they're just i've googled it they're just known for hair excuse me excuse me let's not denigrate uh the two gentlemen of verona musical yeah oh okay i'm the one of the early roles of jeff goldblum look it up folks that one best musical at the Tonys, I no know. one knows it existed. It's crazy. Well, I forgot Evan and Pooh and Wicked. Those were also shows that really shook yeah, up the art form in the 2000s, along with Spring Awakening. Um, but but yeah, it it's just been been a bad time for this art form that's just struggling to to. And to, for me, maybe I'm biased, but I I love what it can do when it works really well. And it's more than yeah. just have a good time. It's transform people. And there's a reason why everyone's mom, when we were all kids, was obsessed with this art form. Because they, you know, something about the the shows they're putting out at the time resonated with that demographic. But it really can can change you because it's all these things working together. It's in the same way that a great film score can make or break a movie. Now you've got the characters singing. You've got those songs furthering the story. You're using dance, which is like, one of the most expressive and primal art forms there is. And not to mention, um, you know, scenery and really every art form, every art form all working together to transform people. And uh, it just rarely, rarely does do the stars align. But I do think there was, there was one other thing I was going to say. Oh, something that is worth noting specifically for Love of Media Tonight to bring it back to the topic is that the musical started to get its footing in the like 1910s and 1920s, um, I guess. And then the dep- when the depression hit, no one wanted to live in New York. And also it was really hard once um, Broadway got unionized to produce live theater. So they all moved to LA and that's why you get all these musical films in the thirties. That's where the musical movie in Hollywood comes from. Okay. After last episode, when Jeremy starts saying we should be able to abuse performers and now Kyle's coming in talking about the unions in the 30s. How controversial are we getting today is all I'm wondering, you know. Um, yeah, I mean, I not not to express a political opinion about it because I, I wasn't alive then, but I do I do know that it made the art form a lot harder for producers yeah. um, because it costs yeah. way more money. Um, Did you know that if you are doing an equity show and you're a producer, you have to buy um, the cast underwear you don't have to they're allowed to require you to um provide their underwear in in an equity contract for a broadway show okay but in fairness if you're doing angels in america you know he's running one of them's running around in his underwear for a while his his magic woman underwear so that kind of you know that levels out but 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 that's 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 the union now which is toxic 
I'll just say it. It's toxic. The the Actors Equity Association is toxic. But um, but the I don't think it's that controversial. I think everyone has a problem with them. Um, but no, I just I just like the fact that that. We every time we get you on mic, the two of you are just like, I'm gonna cut loose. This is the this is the Joe Rogan experience of musical theater here. LOL. Well, I mean I don't I don't see the point in, in um in hiding these these thoughts. I feel like a lot of people have them. They're just too afraid to uh they want someone else to be the first person to express a lot of these thoughts about things that are obvious problems that are hurting people and Everyone just kind of goes, well, I don't know if that's an opinion I'm allowed to have yet. Oh, next year? We're going to have that opinion next year? Okay. <laughs> um, but meanwhile, it just screws people over. So in terms of controversies, I guess we should talk about this now. Okay. Let's talk about why we don't know Maurice Chevalier as well as we should. So Maurice Chevalier is one of the big stars of this period, of the early 30s, right? Massive star. One of those names that we all know, but what happened to his career? Well, okay. So in the late 30s, early 40s, something happened in Europe. Anybody have a guess uh, what that was? I don't know. Um, <laughs> I don't 30s, know if this is... 40s, Europe? No, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So these fellas from Germany invaded france are you kidding right now there was so maurice chevalier was obviously living in france at the time uh and there was a lot of controversy around chevalier's activities now it's interesting what is interesting about this is that the whole chevalier saga is actually a lot more complicated and i am not going to be able to put it all into you know, I'm, I'm not going to do it justice right now, but I'm going to try my best. Chevalier, for a long time, was labeled as a French collaborator, right? Which we got to remember, you know, what was going on in France at the time, the new government of France, the Vichy government, was collaborating with the Nazis who had invaded France. And then, of course, you had the resistance going on. And after the collapse, uh, you know, after, after World War II had ended, there were all these lists coming out of all these alleged French collaborators. Now, obviously, the people within the Vichy government were absolutely Nazi collaborators, in some cases, Nazi sympathizers. Chevalier showed up on some of these lists. Now, Chevalier publicly, during the war and during the occupation, had famously stayed, quote-unquote, apolitical. Where he was just going like, I don't, you know, I just want everyone to get along. I am a lover. I want to, you know, Pepe Le Pew, you know, his whole thing. But he was identified on some of these lists as a as a uh, French collaborator. And some information came out that at a certain point he had performed for uh, some of the some of the collaborator dignitaries in France. He had performed some shows. Now. I think a trial had happened and it was determined he was cleared. But even though he was acquitted by a French convened court, the English speaking press was hostile to him. There were many years that he was refused a visa. And in The Sorrow and the Pity, the famous documentary, he he is, you know, footage of him is shown alluding to the fact that he was a collaborator but also that he, you know, claimed he wasn't, and this whole thing went back and forth. 
So his career kind of took a hit because it was believed that he was, you know, a French collaborator, a Nazi collaborator. He got some work on and off in some less, you know, noteworthy films like a Pepe or a Jessica. And then, you know, in the 60s, he gets picked up to do some Disney films like In Search of the Castaways and The Aristocats, because quite frankly, Disney less uptight about what you may have done during World War II, as we know, because Werner von Braun shows up a lot. Point is, uh, you could yeah, go on was... Disney Plus right now, watch Man in Space, and hear from Werner von Braun. Yeah, uh, was gonna say, probably not the best thing for Walt's uh, reputation is not liking the Jews by hiring some uh, Nazis. So we'll get it, but but here's the interesting thing about Chevalier, and, and the reason I bring this up at all. Turns out a lot more has come out, and of course things are debated, but the reason that, even though Chevalier was in the free zone of France, he was not in the, the Nazi version, he continued to perform. Chevalier's wife and her family were Jewish, and okay. that was not well known publicly. Right. And Chevalier, during any times that the topic of the French occupation came up, was claiming neutrality and I want us to all just get along in order to keep as low a profile as he could knowing that the Nazi regime would target his his wife and his wife's family. In addition to that, it came out that the reported performance that he gave for the regime, or, you know, for the, the Vichy regime, he agreed to do in exchange for the release of 10 wow. prisoners who were part of the resistance. Okay, so I thought like a Claude Rains in Casablanca, but he's actually a Victor Laszlo. Is that what we're talking Kind of. It's very, so he's a, fa that's the thing that makes it fascinating is that essentially once he got the collaborator label, he couldn't shake it, right? Right. It, he basically yeah. spent the rest of his career kind of with a bunch of people who either went, I think he worked with the Nazis, or I don't really care that he worked with the Nazis. It was a while ago. <laughs> and it looks like there's a lot more nuance to his situation. But when we talk about Chevalier and why he is not as well, and why, let's face it, for all of us, our first exposure to a Maurice Chevalier type is Pepe Le Pew, is like the parody, you know. Why that is, is, is in part because I think that this this reputation hit him. And then don't forget all of these movies, which we're going to talk about in a second, but all of these Chevalier movies are risque. They are all sex comedies. That was his thing. His gimmick was, I'm a horny French guy and I'm going to do stuff with women. Like that was his get. And, and sometimes vaguely implied men. These movies were wild. Point is, these movies were suppressed by the Hayes Code. They were censored down. In fact, the version of Love Me Tonight that all of us watched is not the version that originally played. When it was released, there were multiple scenes, including whole verses of songs that were cut out by the censors before a re-release in 1945. And that's all we have. So consider the fact that for the late 30s, early 40s, because the Hayes Code comes into place in 34, 30s and 40s, we're not seeing Chevalier films because they're dirty. And then after that, we're not really seeing Chevalier films because he's allegedly a collaborator. And then they've kind of been lost. You know, we talked about this earlier this season with Harold Lloyd, 
mm-hmm. who they call a third genius silent film. And the reason that we don't know Harold Lloyd the way that we know Chaplin and Keaton is not because one is better than the other or anything like that so much as Harold Lloyd didn't let his films get screened as frequently. There is something to be said about the fact that, you know, this film, when you watch it, you know, Tom talked about like not knowing how funny it was and how absurd it was. This film just did not get to have the legs that A Singing in the Rain has or some of the other films that we know as classics or even classics from the 30s didn't have the legs that that some of these films do. Even the Astaire Rogers musicals that we see, like those were allowed to play. You know, if Fred Astaire had been accused of being a communist or something, you know, we may not have seen them the way that we do. So that's an element to this as well. Interesting. That's, that is interesting. I mean, this movie definitely has some uh, boring parts, and yeah, it's well. got some. Uh, it's got some, uh, like like you said, early early talkies parts. But I do, I I do agree. I think that something else had to have been going on because it's pretty great, and to not and to be in the registry and be pretty great, and for me to not have heard about it till you asked us to do this. Well, I wonder if nationalism after the war played a, a part of it too. You know what I mean? Having like Gene Kelly and Fred Astaire versus um, Chevalier, you know what yeah, I mean? Like sure. if you're having like you know American dancers and performers, you know. Like, That's really interesting. You too. know why take the risk? You know. Mm-hmm. I so. mean, especially because you can't get around. I mean, you know, you can't get around that accent. Right. He certainly never dropped it, and it's the same way. Like another film we did, Ninochka. I mean, Greta Garbo only makes like one film in 1942 and then retires. You know. I do want to talk about the censorship of this, too, just because listening to the commentary, the commentary is, uh, I want to note on the Blu-ray, uh, the Kino Lorber Blu-ray, the commentary is by Miles Kruger, the founder and president of the Institute of the American Musical. I want to single that out because Miles Kruger does one of my favorite things on any kind of commentary, which is somebody who doesn't think the audience knows what a commentary is. You know wow. those commentary tracks where the first five minutes is somebody going, so what I'm going to do is while the film's going on, you're going to hear me talk about some behind the scenes facts and other things. And you're like, oh boy. Um, apparently he was friends with Ruben Williams, so he knows a lot of stuff. But he does single out, he does get lyrics to a song that had its, its verses cut that did have my eyes open a little bit. So you remember the scene where the doctor goes to Jeanette McDonald's character? We barely talked about the plot of this film. We'll, we'll, do, we'll fit some more of that in, but when the doctor goes to Jeanette McDonald in her bedroom, right? Mm-hmm. And you have that little bit of bawdiness where he says, you know, uh, undress, well, I'll only look at you with the doctor's eye. Well, the doctor's eye is satisfied. That whole shtick, right? Yeah. And then he says something, you know, something's wrong with her. What's wrong? Well, she shows the picture of her husband, this elderly man. And, oh, and she hasn't been married in years, right? And then... It, they they do the gag they do in the movie. The actual gag is him walking out and they go, "What does she need?" And he goes, "Well, she needs to be married." Well, we can't get her married. What else can we do? Exercise, and it's oh, a wow. little bit of a double entendre, right? That's what we got to keep. Uh, what was cut are uh, a song that he sings about okay. a, a song is called "A Woman Needs Something Like That." Um, and again, there's some there's some subtlety here, guys. Uh, now, Tom, you've mentioned not being well versed in musicals, so I apologize. This, this may, you know, you may not be able to pick up on the subtle things going on in these lyrics, but you know, we'll all try as we might. The lyrics were, "Let me tell you this, dear. Uh, uh, let me tell you this, my dear. A doorbell needs tinkling. 
a flower needs sprinkling, and a woman needs something like that. A car needs ignition to keep in condition, and a woman needs something like that. All inventions of Edison and medicine would leave me flat. Wait for it. A peach must be eaten. A drum must be beaten. And a woman needs something like that. So they're saying she needs Jesus. That's, I, 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 I can't figure out what that means. It's really obtuse. Any thoughts, Tom? Any theories on what that song? Was I think about? I think that's the exact uh, pitch uh, they give to every woman they try to c- converse, convince to be one of Tom Cruise's wives. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this was early Scientology. I'm sorry, oh, but uh, but yes. So that, those were the lyrics there. In case anyone needs a hint of what those early Chevalier films really were all about back then. There was so much, Myrna Loy's character had a lot to do in the original cut of the film, where there's a whole gag about her, because uh, there's Charlie Ruggles is in the film, you know, obviously is the rust about, there's a whole subplot in the original cut of the film with Myrna Loy and Charlie Ruggles, because okay. uh, Myrna Loy, I mean, she's conveyed in the film, even in this version, as, I guess they would have called it at the time, a loose woman or whatever, but yeah. there's a whole running gag in the film about her offering to take the the other men in the house to the Virgin Spring, and him saying, "Well, no, 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 the Virgin Spring, the next town over, the Virgin Spring." I didn't know they had any there, you know, uh, like that, like little. <laughs> oh, and there's there's so many great moments. It, it, one thing I discovered in the commentary that I did enjoy immensely. So there's a bit where they're at this grand ball, mm-hmm. and it's Myrna Loy and Charlie Ruggles, and then the other old man. And the other guy's in the suit of armor, right? And they're doing a bit about, oh, she's spying through the door to see somebody undressing and all that. The guy in the knight's costume, the visor falls, right? And they just kind of play with it, and it keeps falling. That wasn't supposed to happen. That was just an accident on set, and Mamoulian kept the camera rolling. So if you go back and watch that scene, uh, you see Myrna Loy actually just break on set. Like, she puts the fan in front of her face and is just laughing. And Charlie Ruggles is trying to hold it together. Amazing. Can I ask you at one point, like, did he break? Did someone break? Like, was that on purpose? I think you he did. That? Yeah, I think Jeremy, this is no, Jeremy's think, yeah, superpower. I think, I, I think he noticed all of this. <laughs> but Kyle gaslit me, so. I didn't know. gaslight you in that instance. It was probably other instances throughout the film. You know, this is being married. Yeah, <laughs> welcome. Constant gaslighting, gatekeeping, all sorts of it. Oh, you're you're busting out all the buzzwords today. This is great. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah no, there's Jeremy's cousin taught us there's a triangle of um, <laughs> gatekeep, gaslight, and girl boss, and everyone sits somewhere on the triangle. <laughs> oh, Where's your dot on the triangle, <laughs> girl boss? I we should note by the way, what part of this film too for people watching it. You know, a lot of this, this is a later Chevalier musical, so there are things playing on the iconography. One of my favorite bits that maybe is lost on modern audiences, he was known for his slouched posture and, like, straw flat hat, which uh-huh. I forgot to wear mine. I should have worn mine. But he's a straw flat hat. So when, the, when they were doing the pan of the sounds of the city and the camera pans in and it shows that, like, the wall with the cracks in it that sort of form his posture and his hat hanging on it as, like, the intro of him is really good. Yeah. But my favorite, one of my favorite gags, besides the picture falling down, Chevalier's known for his hat. It's his trademark, right? It's his Indiana Jones thing. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if that was an influence there. When the hat gets run over and the guy comes out and starts laughing that Chevalier's hat is ruined, 
So Chevalier just goes into the car and takes out a second hat. Just great stuff. Like, it's not, has no bearing on the plot. And yes, you could sit back and poke holes and go like, well, why did he think that? But it's just a great bit. And I think that kind of sums up the film and why the film does work is that one of the things that William's very good at, and I think that we lose, you know, um, we were talking about the difference between film and theater and, and the problems going on in theater. And I think part of it is that now, now theatricality is a bad word. Mm-hmm. And I think that mm-hmm. this film really understands that, you know, one of the things I, I think about is that a certain thing that happens in some musicals, whether it's stage musicals or, or film musicals, is every once in a while you get something. Um, uh, the examples I'm thinking of are are in like on the stage, uh, comedy tonight in a funny thing happened to the forum, mm-hmm. magic to do in Pippin, or even on film. Uh, very recently, uh, the opening number of Annette. So may we start where the Sparks brothers and Adam uh, Adam Driver and all of them just start singing about like, can we start performing? Which is there are certain musicals that their first number is essentially just telling you. We're gonna do a show. It's yeah. like the op- or the Muppet Show. You know, every Muppet Show opens with it's time to play the music and light the lights. Right, and it's like telling the audience, "Hey, man, just let us do our thing. We've got magic to do. We're gonna put on a show." And trying to get nowadays the audience into the mindset that people went into this kind of movie already having, which is. I am going to watch you put on a show. I'm going to feel directed. And the only genre that I think gets to do that now uh, in film, hard to some degree too. But I think that the one thing you have is, is that action movies now, I mean, now action film Twitter can get up its own ass about things. But there is this thing of like, when you would go see a Sly Stallone movie or an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, when they're at their peak, Nobody's fucking going to see Cliffhanger because they're invested in whatever the lead character's name is in Cliffhanger. I don't remember. You're going because, okay, Stallone is is climbing rocks. I'll fucking go see that, you know? like. And I think that... That was me. Sorry, me- Kyle. No. That's, um, I moaned because you're making me feel like came. I have to pee, but it's not that I have to pee. It's that... Like, I'm bursting with, like, affirmation for everything you're saying. To be clear, I'm, like, doing, like, multiple things at once while y'all are talking. So if you see me randomly, like, you'll never know. Yeah, you'll never know don't... if I'm reacting at you or anybody, so. Oh, okay. It wasn't about but, me. Okay. But you know what I'm, Tom, you know what I'm saying in terms of, like, that there is this, when you talk about suspension of dis, it's not even just suspension of disbelief. It's being able to kind of go, like, okay, I'm going into this willing to accept what this is going to bring and knowing I'm going to get a specific good time. Well, it's, mm-hmm. it's the difference. You're not going to judge what's it, uh, the new Cronenberg movie the same way you are going to judge Dr. Strange and the multiverse of madness. They're two different yeah. things going for two. Well, different. You shouldn't, but a lot of people will. That's the, and that's, yeah. you know, ultimately the problem is that everything is now judged on the same level and it's not to say like things can't be art like obviously you know there could be art in this in this industry and in the musical theater industry the movie industry and all that but it feels like everybody forgets and i tell this i talk about this with mike all the time i say this on the show all the time it feels like everybody forgets this medium was started to entertain people right okay yes right and and so like 
you Can know, I bring up Malignant uh, real quick? Yeah, Malignant. Perfect example. I want to hear you talk about it as a horror lover, because I fucking love that movie. Malignant is easily the best horror movie last year, because it, it just... Because that's a movie that right from the jump, like Mike's saying, from the very beginning, it's telling you exactly what it is. We yeah. are a heightened, over-the-top, nonsense movie where the, right. just the way they're delivering the dialogue, now we're going to cut the tumor out, cut the title. And then, <laughs> you know, like, then immediately you get the, the main character getting her head slammed into a wall and her husband gets fucking slaughtered. And just the, <laughs> like, like it, it's, and this is only like 10 minutes. And then she's like, right. well, you know, when I was eight, I was adopted. And then you just have the fucking super dramatic orchestral Where Is My Mind music playing. And you're like, yes, yes, give me this fucking nonsense. And you <sighs> think, like, Every 20 minutes, you, the movie you think you're watching, it becomes another movie. And then by the end of it, you're just like, what the fuck is this movie? And it all amounts to nothing. It means nothing. James Wan has nothing to say about the human condition with this movie. He just wanted to make a movie where a little man is sticking out of a woman's head and going, <laughs> they just shove it into her skull. And again, one of the craziest lines of dialogue last year is the sister going, Gabriel was eating your babies! He was feeding off of your babies! And you're like, what the fuck is- Oh my god, I love this shit! Leave it to a fucking New Zealand- I don't know exactly what Asian descent he is, but an Asian man from New Zealand perfectly just captured what it's like to watch an Italian horror movie. What the fuck? What the fuck? What the fuck for two hours? And then just going, yes, thank you. Yes. I don't need to see- what this A24 movie coming out, Bodies, 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 where they keep saying, oh, you're gaslighting me. You're doing this, you're doing that. We're trying to have a message. No, I am a part of the Gabriel Hive where I just want to see a fucking woman twist her body backwards, throw on a fucking leather coat, push her hair back like she's at a fucking goth show in the early 2000s and just slaughter a prison filled with prisoners from every decade of the American Union. You got Tom, Jackie Brown. I just, I'm sorry. He said malignant. No, and I had to go off. No, I, no, I just, I just wanted to say, I just wanted to say, Tom, uh, on behalf of the rest of us here, I want to say, uh, during this month, I'm very proud of you for coming out as a proud member of the the Gabriel community. Gabriel Hive. I think that's really important. The hey, listen, the Gabriel Hive. Hey, listen, if Netflix could accidentally turn the Babadook into a gay icon, let's get Gabriel into the LGBTQ, just, just waving that flag as he's just twisting himself backwards and just like, yeah. Actions in which that flag would wave. I won't blow Gabriel, you know, with Gabriel really close with his sister, very jealous and threatened when she finds a man. Yeah. I, okay. I, I read, I, I ride with it. I'm with it. I'm with it. Um, I'll take it. I, but I was going to say, the reason why I brought up Malignant is I wanted to hear your rant. Um, and I figured you <laughs> can. I genuinely did it just like I wish I had made popcorn in advance, but I also wanted to talk about it because it's exactly what Mike is saying in reference to musical theater. And it's what you're saying, Tom, about people are forgetting uh, like the, the, the comment that theatricality is a bad thing. What you're saying, this art form is to entertain. Um, and what you said about like, like Juan isn't saying anything about the human condition. I mean, he is like our dual natures and the fact that we well, yeah, harbor I, these personalities, all that shit. He's yeah. saying it the way that you should in this art form, which is, it's it's a fun way to say it. It's a playful way to say it. Yeah. You don't have to read into it. In the same way, I argue what what you're saying, when I look in musical theater, and it's also a horror musical, I look at Rocky Horror, and it's a, just a really good time. I would argue that Rocky Horror is saying something really profound. I always say to have Richard O'Brien saying, let's make this, 
transvestite queer person um a movie monster and go oh how scary they're they're lgbt um it's it's uh, an artful way to say something meaningful, but it doesn't have to be the point. If you want to just say something meaningful, you can go write essays. Well, that's, yeah, it's di- didactism is what's kind of killing at all kinds of storytelling. We see it with the, I, I make the jokes about like the A24 model is basically make your whole movie the first act of a normal horror movie. And then your last 10 minutes is telling you what you're supposed to get from this. Or even just most of the time, the whole movie is just like, well, did you know about uh the, the patriarchy blah 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 and you know this is the thing uh i don't know if you guys watched the last drive-in with joe bob but like i, I watched an episode yesterday where he goes um you, you if you just have a message your movie's bad you need to have a good story yeah and even yeah. if your message is stupid like he even makes the joke what's the message of wizard of oz oh you don't have to you know you could stay in your little shitty home in oklahoma in a whatever uh to have a good life it's like that's a bad message but you know what the story's great like we've right. gotten so caught up in having to say the message and not entertaining you because a lot of the best movies have messages. They're just not telling you the message. They're not screaming it in your face. And a great film, the message is the story. So you can't differentiate the story from the message because that, so I, I remember hearing the Smithsonian put out a video, I think was, I think it was the Smithsonian and I think it was Patrick Stewart doing the narration uh, but neither of those details are important. They just give us some context. But the point was that we, it talked about how all these primal needs evolved into different art forms, like how food became cuisine and shelter became interior, next year decorating and design and, um, and like clothing became fashion. And um, story did this too. And it comes out of an, a need to... Uh, to communicate important ideas. I mean, it's what we try to do when we educate people. And uh, time and time again, by and large, if you look at history, storytelling is one of the most effective ways to communicate an idea, to manipulate people. You've got propaganda film. You know, there's it, it is um, an extremely effective way to control, to enlighten, to and to lift people's spirits, but also to convict people, to transform people. Um, because you go on the, the, something about how our our um, limited empathy works. You go on a journey with a character, and um, and the thing is, when you when you study, so I studied screenwriting before I did not in school. I I taught myself stuff, but I read books on screenwriting before musical theater because I had insecurities about writing music at first. And there are rules that you can study for how to more effectively essentially manipulate your audience. And that's all it is. It's for, for an audience, it's I want to be stimulated. And for an artist, it's okay, then I will manipulate you and you'll enjoy it. And that's really all, all it is with film and with storytelling. And um, the more effectively you can keep people's attention and not bore them, the more effective you're going to be in whatever your aim is. Now, if you're, to quote uh, Sunset Boulevard, one of the message kids, and you have a message, that's fine. Um, I actually think it matters. As an artist, I really am passionate about the me- the message and the the theme and what I'm trying to say with my art. Uh, because when when pieces have had that, and it's really Carousel is a really great example. What Carousel is getting at tra- is so important to me. What Les Mis is getting at, and I I agree with you. I don't love Hooper's film, but uh, the, what the stage show is getting at transformed my life and shaped who I am as a person. There's a lot of for me musical theater. Uh, 
does that. A lot of musicals do that for me. Um, uh, and they're all, I would say, in that small category of musicals that don't suck. But, um, but they, in my opinion, um, but they all, the message aside, you don't even have to have a message to tell a good story. You just have, like you said, I guess maybe you do have to have one, but it doesn't have to matter so much as long as how you, in the telling, uh, you do your job. The thing I always, the way I always put it is, is that uh, the perfect, like the perfect movie or musical, or whatever, the perfect story is a the ba- a perfect balance between entertainment and messaging. But if you're going to lean in one direction, it's I feel like it's always better to lean more towards the entertainment side because yeah. once you start leaning towards the messaging side, again, you're just getting, you're just getting a TED talk, you're just getting a fucking a, a chapter in a textbook or a lecture at school. You don't. You know, I, 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 I think the perfect example for like in my field, the horror field, you know, I'm wearing a fucking Suspiria shirt and I got tattoos with skulls getting electrocuted to death. Um, do you look at the original Black Christmas and then you look at the remake from three years ago? The original uh-huh. Black Christmas, this remake is just, it's not even a movie. It's just a Twitter thread of it's like some, you know, girl boss feminist telling you about how bad the patriarchy is and all of this and blah, 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 blah. And you're like, great. Your movie fucking sucks. It's not right. scary. It's not entertaining. You're just you're just ranting at me like I like I don't know whatever. But you go back to that original Black Christmas. It's doing all the things this remake is trying to do about how women aren't treated right, how the patriarchy looks down upon them and kind of puts them in these positions because they don't believe them and they leave them vulnerable and all the shit. But it's not fucking saying that. It's not ending the movie telling you that. The whole movie's not about that. It's just a part of the text that you, you're enjoying or dreading this movie. It's fucking you up. It's making you feel like shit because you're like, God, this is so effective. And then when you start thinking about it, it's lingering in your head because there's a message, you know, right. it's, there's something there that's beyond the entertainment. And we're right. now getting to the point where it's almost condescending to the point of, well, we just mm-hmm. assume our audiences are so fucking stupid. We have to tell them the message and we're not even going to entertain them. And, uh, it fucking sucks. And, you know, it's, it's just not, it's just not great. It's not a great place for storytelling. And to Mike's point, about setting up a show with an opening number or a, f- a musical film. Well, that it, it also, it leads into this, what, and I can say it in a couple of sentences. I know I talk a lot, but this, uh, this um, bigger conversation about the, the problem with, I think musical film is that directors overthink how to do a musical movie. Um, honestly, I think is the problem. Like I hear all these conversations like that, like Tom Hooper, who I think is just the worst. We all do as a musical theater yeah. director like it goes without saying but the um he i hear a lot of conversations about like well we talked about when can a character address the camera and 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 when when do we do a wide shot and and you know we're gonna do our Les Mis movie where it's live singing and it's close-ups and and we're gonna try to hide the fact that this that it's a musical as much as we possibly can and it's like um it's like it's like people are embarrassed of musical theater, like they're trying to like hide the fact that these movies are musicals. And I think, and then it also ostracizes it ostracizes the fans who yeah, loved it, who do too, love it. Yeah, I mean? that's a really so good point. Like, 
So then it's like, what's the point? And then in, in order to You're get people to buy everyone. tickets, you think you have to cast people who aren't good at the art form. So it's a non-starter. And then, but, but what you said, Mike, is what I wish I see more in musical movies where it's just like, we're a musical film and a big, bold exclamation point right at the opening number. Um, and the movies that do that, like Little Shop, um, directed by Frank Oz, I think is one of the greatest musical films ever made. Um, and uh, it's so good. For a million reasons. The director's cut. I'm not a big fan of the theatrical ending. But um, but the reason why they had to change it, test audiences were like sobbing when when uh, yeah. the heroes died because they were so invested in it because of what a great job they did with that movie. And um, it, it's because it's one of the few good musical movies, in my opinion, like really good musical movies out there that isn't one of the ones they'll, they'll talk about in a college program. Um, because it really nailed being a movie and adapting this, the subject matter, which was all Howard Ashman to come full circle. Um, he wrote the screenplay for the film adaptation. Um, but it, uh, it, what you don't see is enough of, yeah, have them address the camera. It's a musical and musicals are written for an audience to like address the audience. Like um, I, I do think that Tim Burton did a really good job with uh, Sweeney Todd. You know, like there are, there like, I know people have their opinions about that movie. I, I, I don't like what he did with Joanna for, as a character, but um, there, and it's funny, those are both horror, I guess, or, or riffs on the horror genre musical movies. Yeah. Um, but it, uh, yeah, it's this bigger conversation about audiences don't know, like, like we're blaming audiences, but I blame the artists actually, um, and the the studios and yeah. the producers, um, because you, yeah, you can spend all your time capitalizing on what audiences like will give you, like they'll give you their money, like that's what happened with Dear Evan Hansen, like they like that year Hamilton was the year before, so audiences were like musicals, um. And people flocked to the theater and the next big show that they wanted to like put on their shoulders and parade through the streets was Jeremy Hansen. Like ads in New York were like, it's the biggest thing since Hamilton. And right. Like, Hamilton was last year. Hamilton like, was last year. <laughs> but it, it wasn't a good show. I got, talk about gaslighting. I got gaslit by everyone my age in the musical theater world who told me I was way off that Jeremy Hansen wasn't good. And now everyone, and now everyone agrees it isn't good. And, um, and everyone's like, I've seen the error of my ways. I'm like about time, but it's because it it was so like, like topical, you know, and in a way that was all buzzwordy and, and make people feel like they are bad people if they don't like this. And then uh, the music was written to like be an earworm. If you listen to the album in your car or when you're driving around, but like musicals should be written for, for when you're seeing them. And, And if the music's good, you'll listen to it in your car. Like you said, there. Right, I always say about musical theater writing, and we didn't do this with Contact High. It's a lesson we learned the hard way. But I always say you should write a show to whatever audience. So if you want to have a Broadway show, think about who's going to be in the audience. I think about the the tourist who, uh, or the the guy who's like on a business trip and he made it a family vacation. He's got his his wife and kids with him, and he's he's thinking about work and he's stressed about like the 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 work meeting he just came from, and he the last thing he wants to do is sit through a musical. Or I think about like some Ken and Stanley, our friends who are in their 70s who really miss what musical theater used to be. And they're just devastated watching this art form fall apart for them on the Broadway stage. Or I think about 
like the young people who just moved to New York who want to be in the art form and they're feeling discouraged and shake. So I, I, I propose all these different kinds of people and it's like, who makes up? And I try to look into it and research it. Who makes up a Broadway audience? Um, and I look at our culture. Where are people at right now? Where's the zeitgeist? And then I write the show. I write the first page of the show directly to it's like a love letter to those people or a or a I'm gonna convict you letter or a like like this last show I just wrote it was um a I, I said to Jeremy like a stand-up routine essentially as high approach I was like okay so it's gonna be a stand-up routine where I alienate everyone um with the character's words because we're living in a time now where people I was like, I don't know how I can write to people authentically anymore because there's so much pressure on artists to like say the right thing or be ethical or whatever. So I was like, I'm just going to get canceled with the first page and just write something that will alienate everybody. Like, like do the Seth MacFarlane, like uh like South Park type thing where it's just like really offensive, really funny, but really, really offensive jokes, piss everyone off and then go from there. Um, because I was thinking about the moment we're living in right now. And and I, I knew if I have a chance at reaching people, I would have to do something like that. I felt I would anyway, that in my opinion, that I'd have to do something like that to to get people. Well, and it's interesting you're you're saying that because I was thinking about with this this film, Love Me Tonight, which we were ostensibly here to talk about. Um Oops. But no, no, it's it's great. This is this is always from day one what I wanted this show to be is like We've got a movie we're supposed to talk about. Let's see where the fuck it goes. But one thing is interesting about this. Yeah. One thing is interesting about this is when you're talking about how the musicals are written, this, you know, what Ruben Mamoulian did with this is a push in that direction in a big way in terms of prior to this, a movie musical was something where they went, all right, we're going to go to our Tin Pan Alley songwriters and we're going to say, hey, give me five songs. And then we're going to stitch a movie around it. Or here's the script. Here's the points where somebody's supposed to sing a song, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And what Mamoulian decided to do was he canned the screenwriter. He canned the composers, brought in Rodgers and Hart, found a a play to adapt for this story, loosely adapt for the story, and then went to them and said, you're going to write the music and you're going to write the score which apparently uh, Rogers thought was very uh, wild for the time to, to have, you know, him write a film. He loved doing it apparently, but to write the film score as well, which is why you get that beautiful, you know, when we talked about the, the dream ballet in Oklahoma or anything like that, you do start to see the early inklings of that during that beautiful deer hunt sequence. Yeah. When this movie stops being a body musical and just becomes this really well shot, really engrossing, beautifully scored hunt. But it's the idea of sitting down and saying, let's, you know, there was a real thought on Mamoulian's part of actually making this thing a cohesive vision for the viewer. And the idea of, you know, you're talking about writing your musicals for who is in the audience for your musicals. I think what Mamoulian does that's so good with this film and is not the case with a lot of other musicals so in some of the other ones, in, in some of the earlier films, Chevalier just looks directly into camera and sings, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or talks to the audience directly. Um, you know, there's one I was watching where he's just going like, ah, well, you, uh, hello, you thought that was my wife. Uh, no, that was my cousin. Uh, my wife is over here. He's just doing a whole bit. But with this, the decision got made, which I thought was very smart, was he just decided, like, we're making a musical. We can still make a musical. 
but I want to make a musical that feels like a movie as opposed to, you know, and what I love though, which is so great, you know, the, isn't it romantic sequence is kind of the epitome of that because it's doing something you couldn't do in a stage show, right? Like you can obviously in a stage show, you could have characters in different places. You know, you mentioned um, Sweeney Todd, and you can have all these characters who are supposed to be in different places singing Joanna or whatever you want to do, but they're all on the stage. This, doing that editing is so good. But even prior to that, one thing I loved, so Chevalier and his other musicals will look into the camera and sing to the audience, right? We don't want to do that in this movie. We want to be a film. So what do we do? When he starts singing isn't romantic, he's sitting by his three-angle mirror in the shop, and we have the camera pan to the first pane of the mirror, where he's a little off to the side. Then the middle pane, so you can still get him looking directly into camera and talking to the audience, but done in a way that does not break the language of the film. Sam, I didn't notice that. That's awesome. And then what I love is, so he does the first pane, the second pane, so Chevalier's head on, the third pane, and then Chevalier himself. So it's this just... It's one of those shots you look at. You know, we talked about Spielberg's West Side Story and just certain choices he makes in that that Tom and I were talking about as soon as it came out of like the way he has them walking through, you know, the walking through the town during the the opening little um I forget what it's called. The or even just the the shot that everyone online just went nuts about is Tony singing, you know, I just met a girl named her. He's standing in a puddle and you just notice the fucking lights start spinning around yeah. him and it's like, "Holy shit." I, I I always would have thought I thought directors were were simple weren't thinking enough about these things when they were but I think Kyle's right in that they're overthinking it because they 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 think all right we're translating this this thing to the to the cinema let's try to make it feel like that thing so how do we shoot it to feel like that and you go no that's the incorrect thing to do because you're gonna make a boring fucking movie one two you're also probably gonna lose the magic of seeing the performers dancing which you know spielberg did he he when you like watch that movie you go that movie's a technical masterpiece how the fuck did he pull it off but then you also just look at it and go he very simply just thought show these people dancing right the camera to heighten the movements to heighten the emotions but always see what they're doing because as much as this stuff you know originates from the stage we and you can and it's still you know with as much as you guys are saying it's a dying art form and, you know, these producers are fucking killing it, it still exists. But when you get a guy like Spielberg, when you get a guy like Frank Oz or whatever, the ones that work, it's pure cinema. It's it's mm-hmm. when it's done in a way that you can only see in a movie because you can't do the camera moves that Spielberg did. You couldn't have the giant fucking you know, mm-hmm. a, a killer plant in Little Shop of Horrors doing all this shit, attacking a city at the end and destroying the world. It's it's just pure cinema. And and so many, and, I, and you're right, so many of these guys overthink it, try to make it feel like, oh, well, you know, the people in Tennessee can't get to the city to see it, so let's try to make it feel like they're on Broadway. No, no, that's not what they want. That's, no. not, that's the wrong thing. Yeah, no. I, I mean, it's just, you know, like Mike said, they, they, uh, Ruben Mamoulian, Julia Gulia, uh, you know, he, another he was, epic musical film. <laughs> he he had the right idea of like, no, we're not making, we're not just going to do a one to one transition. We're going to bring it 
into the cinema. We're going to make it something that you can't see on the stage. And anytime a director thinks that way, I mean, that seems like it's always the right choice. But hey, that's just me. Also, I just wanted to another point. I never thought of this, but you're right uh, about writing the music to be experienced in the play. Because when Hamilton was big, everyone's like, oh my God, I'm listening to the soundtrack. It's so good. And I tried to listen to him like, I I can't listen to this because I feel like I need to see what the fuck is happening. Mm-hmm. And then by the time I finally saw it, when they dumped it on Disney Plus, I was like, holy shit, this is good. He wrote it to be experienced, not to just listen to it when you're commuting to work and you're half mm-hmm. listening to it. It's something that is part That's and parcel of you. the experiment. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but what you just no, said no. is literally to a T what J.R. Van Hansen was written to be was you half listen on your way to work. In fact, it's got the opposite problem where I remember Dear Evan Hansen, like when it played on the Tonys or something like that, and they all sang, you will be found. And you're like, oh, this must be really inspirational. And you kind of just went like, oh, I bet this is touching. And I think a lot of people, I remember when the trailer came out and a bunch of people were going, he's not gay, thought that was what it was about. Right. I thought well, it was just like, no, there were instead, that came out, like movie about gay teen to be adapted. And it's like, no, they're all singing this. Tom, do you know what you know what the plot of that movie is, right? Or the plot well, of that I show? learned about it when everyone started yeah. clowning on the fifty-year-old guy playing the main character. Um, the overthinking yeah, thing that you said, like they're trying so hard to hide that he's not actually, not actually eighteen, that he looks like he's one hundred and twelve years old. Own it, you know, what I mean? own what age he was or whatever. I think yeah, especially they because they're especially because they're like casting around him like people that actually look yeah, of the age. Right. So you're like looking at this old, it's, it's the 30 Rock gif. Hello, fellow young people. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Sorry, uh, yeah, Mike movie... and I cut no, him it's, off. No, it's, 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 it's a movie about a kid who's a loser and he, some weirdo's like, hey, like you're writing notes. Uh, I'm going to take your note. Uh, and then he kills himself and everyone thinks he's his best friend. And he fakes that and cons the guy's sister into being his girlfriend and everyone loves him. And it's, Basically, yeah. that Robin Williams movie. Just a relatable teen movie. Just something we all become who, of age. Who, speaking, of, speaking of gaslighting, I mean, who who doesn't love that good old American high school tradition of gaslighting an entire school after <laughs> some guy kills himself into making yourself the main character of the story? Right. right. <laughs> so, yeah. I, I'm, But, I mean, the thing that's interesting about it in, in that regard is when it comes to... Yeah, just the musical in general and, and and what it can do. I think the mistake that something like a Dear Evan Hansen makes, like those songs sound like good musical songs that don't actually convey the feelings in that moment. No. You Will Be Found is a song that should play inspirationally at one point and not the faked suicide note of a depressed teen. So I say all that to say the best musicals are it's not just that the songs are catchy, I think. The best movie musicals, too. Not just that the songs are catchy, it's that the feeling is infectious. And I think that I say that because there are a lot of songs in Love Me Tonight, and there are a lot of songs in other Chevalier musicals that I think are fine. And I, you know, as much as we like the opening sequence of, of the film and so on, I think the reason isn't it romantic really sticks out and taps into what the a good movie musical does is that it's not just that the melody is catchy. It's conveying a feeling. It's conveying a feeling mm-hmm. of 
being in love. It's conveying a feeling of not just being in love, but feeling the infectious feeling of love. Not just like, oh, I've met the love of my life, but like the feeling you feel when like you see a young couple in love and you just feel a swoon. You know, the, the movie musicals that we love use music to convey an emotion that we otherwise can't put into words. There is no monologue that you can give a character that feels as good as the way you look tonight in Top Hat does. Or uh, or isn't it a lovely day to get caught in the rain in Swing Time, which we did earlier. Or on the opposite side of things, to quote a movie that, that Tom loves dearly, there is no monologue that you could give Michael Paré I was just that gonna, is going to feel up. as cathartic. Yes. That is going to feel as cathartic as when, you know, she's singing tonight is what it means to be young and he's watching her and the lyrics are not about that. And the music is not about that. And yet when you combine those images and those lyrics and that music, it sticks with you. Isn't it romantic sticks out from this film not just because, hey, it's a great sequence that it goes from sounding like a, a hum to a military march to a, you know, a, a Romani, uh, you know, number to an opera. It's the fact that it it sticks with you. And I think that that's something that it's a good movie musical can do is help you access feelings that you didn't otherwise know how to say. It's like we were saying, it's part and parcel with the whole package. You know, it's these it's it's more than about like the emotion. It's about. In this story, the emotion is so overwhelming, the only way you can get it out is to sing it. Whatever the right. emotion is. And, uh, yeah, I don't know, it's like the conversation we had singing in the rain and the, you know, all the shit we've been saying today. You know, so many of these, so many of the worst musicals don't really get the whole package and uh, they kind of just go for the shock and awe and don't go for a cohesion. Uh, right. But I feel like... Uh, I feel like Kyle's, uh, I think we're about ready to get Kyle to bed. No, it isn't. I thought I, what you were saying was genuinely making me think about, I was moved during, isn't it romantic? And I, that was a romantic, like put my hat on his shoulder because I, uh, I'm like all business. No, like. I'm really enjoying what, what you're saying. Uh, please don't let me. Weird Did anybody else, uh, have anything specific they wanted to touch on before we wrapped up talking about how this film did at the, at the Academy Awards? I mean, if not, I do want to spotlight two gags that I love that we didn't talk about. Uh, well, besides the line about if that if that painting on the wall had ears, it would drop, and then it drops and sings. Singing painting puppet is amazing. We both we both shrieked amazing when that amazing gag. <laughs> the also during that sequence, when the three aunts, the three women that we talked about, the three McBethwin, they all go, oh, 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 and then a tiny dog woofs. Great, oh, it's great so ending good. bit. So good. Because I thought they sounded like dogs before it happened. Mm -hmm. And then I was worried my dog was going to bark because they sounded like dogs. And then that moment happened. And I was like, they, it was self-aware. They knew they sounded like dogs. And then the, the last bit that I did love, because it's such, a, this movie doesn't have a lot of like quick wordplay bits like you would later see in, um, in films like, uh, like Sullivan's Travels or any of the Howard Hawks comedies. But there is one quick exchange of dialogue that I loved, which is just, she's on the horse chasing after the train, and you get the exchange. Stop this train. What's the reason? I love him. That's not a railroad problem. <laughs> Beautiful. Great. That was great, a great gag. That was a great strip of dialogue, yeah. Um, I thought she was going to yeah. die. I, yeah, really, I kind of wanted her to die. Yeah, I was we like... were like, just like Paul. 
Um, <laughs> but I, no, there's so much I want to say because we tapped into the things that I could go on for hours about. Um, and I shouldn't, but I, but I will say what you were just saying, Tom and Mike, both of you were touching on conveying a feeling that can't be expressed in a monologue. I mean, that in that, that in a nutshell is why I love the art form right. and why I wish well, I mean, it it's interesting too. Like, I think we both have a newfound appreciation for musical film when it's done really well, just from having worked on for um, like the past year now, like um, an entire season of musical year television show, yeah. you know, um, and like really focusing on that and, you know, trying to entertain the audience. And we have a, a message that we're trying to say, but, you know, what, how can we say it in a way that um, is entertaining to uh, people who are watching television as well you know it's like a mix of a mockumentary style and um you know a musical you know which like you don't think would go together but then it just somehow does you know or at least i think it, it does and so we didn't know if it would when we came up with that idea but it's it, it's everything we're talking about here today the reason why we're so passionate about it the reason why i could talk and talk and talk and talk is because this is what we do and it's really high stakes for us. Like it's, I, I I don't want the art form to die because I'm then everything I've been putting my whole person into is over. Not that it's gonna die overnight, but what you're saying about active faith. So our show is a musical, and we decided that um a couple days before the ta- the first table read, which was a couple days before we shot the pilot, um because there was a mu- there was a sequence where there's a musical theater writer and they were singing his song and we were like this, should this be a musical sequence or should they just mm-hmm. stand there and sing it um a cappella and as the characters in the story and we decided to make the show a musical because we we're like the office but it's also glee hasn't been done before and we want to do something that like people haven't no one's done yet and um that was what finally we all were on the same page. Let's make it a musical. And it's the best part of Act of Faith is that it's a musical. Right. Like, and it, but we had to get artful about every song, mm-hmm. about the rules, about, well, how do you in a pilot set up and give yourself permission to do all the things we wanted to do with musical storytelling later? And I feel like we did it. We, what we came up with, oh yeah, d- sets well, it up it's, for it's the rest a, it's of the season. It's a gag, but... you know, and but it's also like a very heartfelt gag. You know what I mean? It's about these two characters who are, you know, interested in each other, and they're saying, you know, the, the title of the song is "Fruit for You." You know, and it, it's about being gay, but it's also about being like. It's also know, about Gertrude, Gertrude Stein's, Stein's bananas, bananas in her kitchen, in her kitchen. and it's, so it's it, but like it's very... also about we call it the pink scare, and they say think red scare, swap out gays for commies. They work in this like company where you get fired for being gay and uh, it's a really heavy conversation really heavy and then they start singing i'm a fruit for you and it becomes funny again and um it, it that's not just writing a musical it's it's also just talking about what audiences what tom was saying about you got to make it fun you got to make it entertaining and we're losing sight of that and and um the art form storytelling but it's yeah i could go on and on uh to answer your question mike i have like 20 other things i wanted to say that i'm Let's be clear. You guys are going to have many more chances to opine on the state of the musical. We have plenty more musicals in the registry, so don't you worry about that. Okay. Um, but just to to bring us home, if you got you guys are welcome to guess too. If you don't know this off, like if you didn't look this up. But Tom, how do we think "Love Me Tonight" fared at the Academy Awards? What do we think? It zero. Got Tom's guess is zero. Uh, did you? Did either of you gentlemen want to wager a guess as to how we think "Love Me Tonight" may have performed at the Academy Awards? I'm gonna give it nine. Yeah, one like or two awards, I would yeah. say. Uh, is that what you yeah, would say? Yeah, I'd say two. I'd say it was low. Well, 
The winner here is Tom. Love Me Tonight received zero Academy Award nominations, despite the fact that two of Chevalier's films, One Hour With You and The Smiling Lieutenant, both received Best Picture nominations the previous year. Dude had two movies in the Best Picture category the previous year, did not this year. Now, part of that could be because a different musical uh, really kind of rocked the damn house this year. The Best Picture nominees that year were 42nd Street, A Farewell to Arms, a movie we're doing next season, I Am a Fugitive from a Chain Gang, uh, Lady for a Day, Little Women, The Private Life of Henry VIII, She Done Him Wrong, Smiling Through, State Fair, and the winner, Cavalcade. Worth noting, 42nd Street, I Am a Fugitive from a Chain Gang, She Done Him Wrong, and State Fair are all also in the National Film Registry. So those will be films that we're covering uh, down the line. Jeremy and and Kyle, Hass and Swanton, thank you guys so much for coming on. Thank you guys for for coming back on. And we are absolutely uh, looking forward to having you guys back again next season. Uh, we'll, 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 we'll take a look at the list once we, once we wrap this one and see what you guys want to swing by for, but it is always a pleasure to have you guys here. Uh, it's great to talk to you. Uh, we miss you guys. Uh, and we, we hope that we get a chance to, to hang sometime. Thank you so much for having us. We love being here. So this was one of my favorite episodes to record in a long time. So this was great. Jeremy, Kyle, thank you guys so much for joining us. And everybody else, stick around, because we'll be right back with our picks for the National Film Registry. The National Film Registry isn't some fixed object, frozen in time. It's always growing, adding new titles every year. These annual selections are made by the National Film Preservation Board, with members like Martin Scorsese, Alfred Woodard, and Leonard Maltin and representatives from organizations like the Academy, the DGA, and the AFI coming together to debate and decide. But they don't just pull titles out of thin air. They pull from the public, people like you and us, who can submit their nominations for the registry in a form on the Library of Congress's website. What we do, at the end of each episode, is have Mike and Tom pick films not yet in the registry that they feel should be, inspired by that day's topic. At the end of each season, those films will be formally submitted to the National Film Registry for consideration on behalf of your missing out. Here are today's picks. Okay, so my pick was actually something I watched recently, and I wasn't expecting it to kind of uh, tie in so perfectly to this movie. Um, as we talked about, this movie is very goofy, very light. There's a lot of great gags. It feels very Looney Tunes. And uh, this movie I watched recently is very much that it's a top secret uh starring val kilmer his first movie i believe and it's from the team that did airplane and it's just it is so goddamn funny it is so goofy it's a riff on those like 50s like oh i'm a musician doing these like uh it's like a elf like making fun of the elvis movies and he's like a spy he's like a musician but he gets caught up in a nazi like spy plot Uh, But, like, the song at the beginning that he sings is like, and we're gonna go surfing with us geek guns, too. And and, and just from there, it's just absolute nonsense. One of my favorite gags in the movie is they're trying to get away from the the Nazis, and they, like, get trapped in a room, and they look out the window to see if they can escape, and they look down, and it's the, it's the, it's the typical, like, shot of, like, Here's like a miniature of the cityscape we did with the car, like little toy cars driving by. But there's fucking, there's just hamsters running around. 
it's just like that's uh, and it's just it's like it's it's just so funny it's so light and goofy and cartoonish and very much in the vein of this movie and um i know airplane is in the registry i believe Mm -hmm. uh if if not it should be but i believe it is and uh i think this movie is just as good as airplane and it's got a different flavor to it and it just shows that those guys in the 80s were maybe the best comedy guys going at the time and uh i uh my my pick is top secret so i was thinking about this film and what it uh what it is and and what makes it special and um my pick is is not a it's it's not a musical per se but it has the energy of a musical and i also think it has other qualities that are in line with uh with love me tonight uh, one is the fact that it is a very goofy comedy bits just happen uh, another is it's built around a star and that star persona that that it's not a case of necessarily you're going to a movie to see you know a, a radical new character you're going because you know the star and you want to see what antics he gets up to right he's got a signature look and a signature voice and a signature style and you just want to see what he does in all these incidents there's also a case of the fact that this is a movie that I look at the same way Love Me Tonight. I mean, we know that there were Chevalier films before Love Me Tonight. They're not in the registry because Ruben Mamoulian, who is really a horror director, you know, a re- prior to this, had done Jekyll and Hyde. I should say he's not entirely a horror could be done Jekyll and Hyde, comes in and takes that kind of horror aesthetic to this big, goofy comedy, and it amplifies it so much. That's the same case with my registry pick. And as I mentioned, things just happen. Silly things just happen in this movie. And they're just great bits. And they're never explained. They're just absurd acts for absurdity. Same in my registry pick. For example, there is no reason why a group of bikers should be assuaged by a man in a gray suit and white shoes getting up on the bar and dancing to the song Tequila. (laughs) My pick for the National Film Registry is 1985's Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Much like a Chevalier film, you are watching this movie because it's Pee-wee. And what is Pee-wee going to get up to? Now, obviously, I know Paul Rubens plays Pee-wee Herman, but even so, like it was an established character, and you're just there to see what antics he gets up to. There is a lot of just goofy nonsense that you are willing to go along with because the film is just confident. The large Marge sequence in another movie maybe doesn't work. The fact that in a scene... Pee-wee can just turn around and go, oh, really? Amazing Larry. And it just cuts to a guy with a mohawk who has never been introduced before. That that all works. And part of the reason that that works is anybody else directing that movie, Pee-wee's Big Adventure, it's forgettable, right? The same way that, you know, Love Me Tonight could have just been another Ernst Lubitsch, um, Maurice Chevalier film on the rails. But Mamoulian really improves that film. And I think that it's Burton's clarity of vision and Burton's gothic horror sensibilities much like mamoulian brought from jekyll and hyde that really elevates it i mean Wee's big adventure is a is a a classic film it's a it's an iconic film that's a lot better than it has any right to be again like love me tonight it is a, a classic comedy built around a star persona Wee's big adventure should absolutely be in the national film registry let's all go to the lobby 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 Thank you again to Jeremy and Kyle for joining us. Next week, we're discussing one of the most highly acclaimed dramas of the 1930s. Comet Over Hollywood's Jessica Pickens joins us for 1936's Dodsworth. 
Don't forget to follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you again next time. Here on You're Missing Out. They honor movies of historical, cultural, or aesthetic importance on the National Film Registry.